If the events of 2020 have had a common theme, it is there's nowhere to hide. If the plague doesn't get you, the riots will, followed by a helpful dose of economic displacement and firestorms from 20,000 simultaneous lightning strikes as seen in California recently. If this all doesn't make one believe in a higher power, one at least can concede there are forces at work bigger than one's own control. In Plantation America, as author and martial artist James LaFon terms it, you were never meant to be in control. Now living from city to city with a backpack and notepad, James has witnessed firsthand how the nation's already weak social fabric has further unraveled and gives us advice from years of living in rough parts of town on how to deal with what's coming to your neighborhood next. Well, I'm not a crook. I've burned everything I've got. A military-industrial complex. A new world order. But we are here to destroy the control over the industry of other people. I did not trade arms for hostages. It's been time dealing Hello and welcome to the myth of the 20th century. Uh, today we are very honored to have a friend of the show return to us uh, in a very interesting, uh, to say the least, time in American history. Uh, a lot of listeners have been asking uh, to hear from James LaFond and how he's doing. Uh, I'm joined by Hans and Nick, by the way. Um, hey, guys. Hello, Adam. How are you? Oh, I'm fine. Hello! But the question is, is America fine and has it ever been fine? Uh, so, James, thanks for coming on. How are you? Uh, what have you been up to? It's probably been... Another six months or so. Uh, last we spoke, you were uh, fighting off uh, people, or maybe that was a two-show ago. Um, but you, at one point, you had told us you were trying to live in the streets of Manhattan. I think today you're probably wise not to go back there. And I've heard that you've you've moved yet again. So uh, maybe you can update us. And uh, I've heard you've you've been working on some more books. We'll get to that, I think, later in the show. But just how are you? How are you doing, James? And what do you think of all of this going on? Oh, I'm doing fine. The last time I talked to you, I was in Pittsburgh. And then I spent time in Jersey, Baltimore, Virginia. And I'd like to thank the tracksuit ninja from the Ukraine for putting me up in Virginia. Uh, and uh, I spent a week with a nice family in Illinois. He's a listener, Electric Dan, who sparred with me in his driveway for five days. Uh, didn't mind the neighbors thinking he was a psycho. And um, uh, back in Utah, I spent a day in Denver, Colorado looking at all the silly boys and their gorgeous owners. And uh, I actually talked to the head of the private security army that was there, and that was interesting. Uh, you know, I, I talked to a couple of cops when I was back east, and uh, 
Uh, I guess uh, since the last time we talked, uh, there were 24 books. Uh, but most of them are only 120 pages. So. The last time we uh, we talked, I think we we uh, we talked about the Peloponnesian War, and uh, you know America has completely <laughs> collapsed <laughs> in that time, and uh, you know it's starting to look like we might have our own sort of internal Peloponnesian War, uh, certainly within North America and in the confines of the United States. Uh, what you know, talking to cops and private security and people all over the country. What's your feeling of uh, how where people are at psychologically, how they see the future? Do people feel like we're all sort of uh, tumbling towards the American Peloponnesian War? Uh, as usual, most Americans are completely deluded, you know, uh, about what's going on. Uh, and Thomas Chittam, correctly predicted 2020 is the year that the second American Civil War would kick off, and it did, and it's over. It only lasted a few weeks. Once a country kneels, it's over. I, I read a manual. Uh, okay, one of my left wing, an actual BLM member that I coach, was reading his book written in 1943 that he gave it to me. He's so upset over the events happening and He's so convinced that armies of Christian rednecks and pickup trucks are going to invade his city and drag away all the POCs that he can't even read. He's so upset. So he gave me this book. And it's Psychology for the Fighting Man. It's an officer's training manual from 1943 in which all of this is explained. It says you can destroy their economy, you can kill their bodies, but you never achieve victory until you achieve victory in the mind of the enemy. And that happened in America, and I think that uh, the people behind the scenes, uh, once they saw that over 95% of Christians stayed home from church uh, based on unconstitutional edicts, and mostly just news, I think that they knew that the, the human religious impulse was going to manifest on the atheistic left, because Atheism has devolved into a real, really weird pantheon of, uh, uh, of, uh, of militant cults. So I really do think that uh, we're in Reconstruction. Civil War II is over. There'll be some shooting, but it's just going to be clean up. Uh, it's, you know, I, I have friends on the right that are hiding inside their houses uh, next to their gun safe. And just wondering, you know, when Antifa is going to come to their neighborhood. Try to explain to them. If they come, they're just a goat being set out for the tiger, and you're the tiger, and the hunters have set the goat out there. Okay, that's, they just, nobody understands because they believe all the media bullshit. Everything is fake, gay, phony, and lame. And, um, you know, the cops seem to have the best appreciation of what's going on. They know they've kind of been written out of it. And uh, they have very little faith in most of their colleagues who they know are just riding a pension. Uh, opportunity and will do whatever they need to do to collect that pension. Uh, so, uh, yeah, it's, uh, I think we're in reconstruction and I think we've actually, uh, we're looking at something that's also very similar to the Reformation here. Uh, we had, uh, I think our society was so fragile that for us to take unemployment at half the level that Christendom 
took death in the Black Plague did just as much to dislocate us socially and religiously and has really given rise to a new alternative religious movement, which, you know, uh, broadly speaking, I'd say it's social justice. You know, it's like human self-worship. Richard Burton predicted this in his book of the soul in the early 1880s. And so it's pretty obvious if you don't consume any current news media, what's going on. Drawing a a broad uh, analogy between the COVID and riots, Black Lives Matter events, I would say that there's a common thread between them and that it seems to be favored by the left and opposed by the right. And despite the fact that there's a right-leaning, relatively right-leaning president in the White House, if you view it from this lens where the left is in favor and the right is against, and the right, as you pointed out, is hiding inside uh, and these events seem to keep ratcheting the the level of irritation on the right more and more uh, just adding yet another point of friction and poking at the eye uh, waiting for the the person on the right to snap i would characterize it as agitation propaganda uh, and almost like a trap. Uh, you could call it Charlottesville on steroids if you want. Um, but what happened in that event, I think, is a microcosm of what's happening throughout the country right now, where all of these things, these <clears throat> little requests that never end, put the mask on, follow social distancing rules, uh, doesn't matter if it violates the Constitution. Uh, oh, by the way, we're going to release all these criminals into your neighborhood because we're worried they might get sick. But if you wear a mask, you're going to get arrested. Uh, and then if we uh, if we have someone die who's a person of color, despite the fact that people who are white are dying at much higher rates, the media is going to focus on that. And then we're going to unleash even more mobs and riots and, and more chaos into you. And if you do anything, the media will paint you as the villain. And it just seems like a giant, like as you as you drew the analogy between the goat and the tiger, it's it's like bait. They're trying to get people to identify themselves as quote unquote troublemakers who are not obedient to the system. And it's I think particularly targeted at the right. This is how I view it. I think it's a very sophisticated psychological warfare operation right now, and the goal is to control people who are dissidents in in the country um now one might call that a wild conspiracy theory but with the election coming up i think it makes some sense so just wanted to put my theory out there see what you thought the uh uh, uh the first day the mask came on important back in march and they, they weren't very common uh people weren't in such a hurry there except for the the really frail hipster elvish types uh i was talking on the phone with a former army intelligence officer who's now a homeless wounded veteran living in the american southeast uh and he told me he said masks are going to be a great sorting mechanism for the powers that be particularly with the type of surveillance that's in place he said, law enforcement now has shit we were using 10 years ago in Iraq and Afghanistan. So he said, it's a very good shorthand 
for if you're looking for somebody that's going to resist arrest, for instance, go after the guy that doesn't have a mask on. Now, I have, uh, when I was in Baltimore for a few months, living in Baltimore City and Baltimore County, uh, this time last year when I was back there, I would typically be attacked by a group of young Bantu warriors about once a week, sometimes twice every other week, but about once a week. And, you know, at whatever point I got a knife in my hand or they figured out I was going to splat it or head with this cane I was carrying, they would back off. Uh, but when I went to Baltimore with no mask on and I was outside and all these young thugs were wearing surgical masks outside, I would walk right through packs of them and they would scatter like leaves that just got blown off by this like unseasonably cold wind and it would literally run away from me. I was enjoying being Count Dracula in London, I guess 1901. And then finally, uh, uh, there, there's some, uh, Squatam Islands were moving in a neighborhood I was staying in trying to bite into the drug trade. So the set leader that I had a truce with, uh, apparently brought one of these guys in that got an early release because of COVID. Looked like a looked like a light heavyweight Livingston Bramble. This guy would have definitely beat my ass. So I decided to kill him immediately when he threatened me. And uh, he uh, he pulls up. He comes in a neighborhood to be muscle against the Latinos. And I was actually very flattered that he he challenged me to a fight, which for a man my age and looking at this guy I could be a professional prize fighter in his twenties. It was quite a compliment. Uh, so he said, uh, he said, stop, or it's on. When I say stop, you say, you stop. And I kept walking, and he pulled his car over, and he gets out, and he says, it's on. So I took my hat off with my left hand so he wouldn't see me draw my knife with my right hand because I knew I couldn't beat this guy in a fight. And uh, he said, uh, he called me a disease-spreading motherfucker. Okay, he didn't have a mask on, by the way. So I named him Hazelnut Van Helsing. He came right after me, and he's like, what's up with the hat, nigga? What's up with the hat? And he never saw the knife. So this guy's going to hit me with a right hand. I'm going to rip his guts out with a foot and a half long incision. And everything's over. I'm, I'm already replaying how I'm going to attack the responding police officer. Okay, because I got white people watching this on the porch. I know they're going to call the cops on me after I successfully defend myself. I was saved from this fate by a guy who previously tried to mug me with other guys on two separate occasions over four years. Okay, very muscular young man. And he walked up to this guy. They were obviously had a meeting. Criminal black guys have this thing where they talk into each other's mouth. It's really gay looking. Well, he does that to Hazelnut Van Helsing. And the guy immediately stops threatening and following, and they just it's just total shutdown. They get in a car, and they go about their business and totally leave me alone. So he probably said, look, that's our pet white man. Leave him alone. You know, he's not a narc. You know, he's not with his specs. Leave him alone. So uh, that was the only threatened act of violence on me in the Baltimore area in three months, okay, when I would normally get one a week, and it was a challenge to a fight. It was not uh, a predatory attack. It was street clearance. 
It was getting able-bodied males off the streets so you could do your business. So the only thing I was upset about was at the same time, the cops were starting to patrol the back streets of that neighborhood. And one of the cops pulled over and I fucked me while I was drinking a beer on my landlady's porch. Okay. Uh, and, but otherwise, that neighborhood is very safe. White people now walk their dogs even at night. White people could sit out on their porches. Only one savage warrior came up that street in three months, and when he looked at me and I stared at him, he went the other way. Okay, so Baltimore City and Baltimore County, under shamdemic conditions, has all of a sudden become much safer for regular working white people, and it's because the savages are fighting their drug war because the cops are unlikely to interfere because the cops are demoralized. The cops know they're not going to get any support from the government for use of force. And you also have cops, uh, you know, uh, enforcing social distancing at shopping centers and being ready for uh, uh, to go uh, protect hipsters that want to go parade somewhere. Uh, and protest for Black Lives Matter. So it's actually in an area like Baltimore, uh, you got more black dudes killing more black dudes, which I don't have a problem with. But for people like me, it all of a sudden become much safer. And I had a couple cops tell me, he's like, both of them are like, look, don't wait there and then kill the responding officer, okay? Because uh, that's what I brainwashed myself to do. I'm totally dedicated to never being arrested. I'm just not going to let it happen. Uh, but they both told me it's like look we're going to take 45 minutes getting there you're going to have to wait for us for us to even arrest you so just run you know so uh, my goal physically right now is just to stay white enough so that i can run for a mile so if i have to stab somebody and rip their guts out then i can run and then not have to stab some female police officer in the neck so her buddy's shooting okay so that's basically what my life turn has turned into when i'm in an urban area and I had some close calls with pigs. But uh, for the most part, uh, I've actually had some nice conversations with active police officers who, uh, who actually sought me out for somebody to talk to, partially because they know I really hate cops. Uh, because now they hate their bosses and they hate most of their coworkers. And by the way, one NYPD officer told me that that daughter of the politician that got caught rioting and arrested, okay, he was either the governor or the mayor? I think he was the mayor, who was uh, de Blasio's okay. freakish-looking okay. daughter. Well, he yeah. told me, he said, you know, she doesn't go anywhere without a two-man security detail who are active-duty police officers. So she would have had to go to that riot with two police bodyguards. <laughs> There's no other way it could have happened. <laughs> <laughs> Right. Well, that that's a James, typical I, pattern. I have a question I've meaning to ask you for a bit. Yeah. What do you make of uh, men who put uh, stickers on their car that say things like "Blue Lives Matter" or you know other other sorts of uh, uh, pro pig uh, memorabilia? What do you, what is your take on this? Well, I guess sucking a blue dick is better than sucking a black dick. But I'm not going to do either. But I put that in the same category. Uh, those are just like the underworlds of Kukistan, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, even the cops that I talk to know that the cops are done is even a potential 
force for good. Not that they were ever designed for that. They're a relic of the industrial age, which was instituted to beat the shit out of my ancestors when they went on strike. Okay. And for a couple of decades, they practiced on Negro criminals because they didn't have anything else to do because it was against the law for us to defend ourselves against the Negro criminals. Uh, And now they know what their real job is. Their real job is to pretend to protect property and look out for whichever one of us successfully defends ourselves. And then they'll get to do what they were trained to do, which is boot and shoot. Why do you think the uh, police are sort of done? And, and do you, you had mentioned that uh, you had spoken with a head of a private security company. Yeah. You know, this has been talked about for years in places like uh, Detroit, right? Uh, you know, as the Detroit PD kind of implodes and falls apart. Uh, private security companies were seeing an uptick in growth and were actually seeing a lot of former cops uh, join their ranks. Do you see private security firms dominating uh, property protection, uh, you know, civil liability resolution, things like that, or, or you just see general lawlessness and uh, ineffectiveness of court systems, of uh, criminal justice systems, and things like that? Uh-huh. Well, I, I know one former cop who was a good cop. I actually wrote a novel based on the characters based on him. It's called The Last Good Cop. Uh, but he now works for a private security organization doing protection of religious sanctuaries. Okay. Uh, not necessarily Christian, but religious sanctuaries. Uh, you know, he's paid by people who actually took out money. They'll actually kick out money for the protection of their religious sanctuaries where, you know, other people uh, will will not. But the, uh, when I took the train into Chicago uh, two weeks ago, like the day after they cleaned out the Miracle Mile, uh, I was uh, greeted by uh, 10 cops. It was a type of transit cop and Amtrak cops and a Chicago cop. And they had bomb-sniffing dogs because they're worried about people being uh, trained in for, for riding purposes, I guess. I uh, talked to a private security contractor who does uh, the electronic surveillance for the local Coast Guard uh, in, Ch- in Chicago. And three of these BLM Antifa people actually came over the fence and were apprehended by Coast Guard security. That duty has since been turned over to the U.S. Marines. They've been given orders to shoot. And so this is very interesting because you have, uh, there's, a, there's a willingness to defend military installations that is positively lethal. But the uh, federal uh, uh, bakery of insemination, okay, knows that people are using mass transit and caravans and U-Hauls to go out and loot subdivisions in Illinois and to go into other cities and attack them, and they're doing nothing about this. So it does tell you that the cities have been opened as fair game uh, by the feds, but that federal installations are off limits. Now, the, uh, in uh, Denver, the, uh, by the way, Amtrak, uh, it's, it's federal, federally subsidized, and it's all on federal property. And they're very serious about their security. Uh, they uh, 
Uh, they'll even put you off in the middle of Wyoming, in the middle of nowhere, if they catch you smoking a cigarette in the, in the bathroom, right? They're really strict about the rules. And um, the Amtrak station, Union Station in Denver, I spent all day there looking at all these gorgeous babes. And I think I was actually in line at the coffee shop behind the Land O'Lakes butter chick, who's probably looking for a stripping job right now since that gig's gone. But uh, the, uh, the private pigs, it was Allied Alliance Security. They were crawling all over the place. I counted 18 of these pigs. And they got body armor on, the whole nine yards. And I'm sitting in the lounge drinking a coffee. And every time I take a sip of my coffee, if I neglect to pull my bandana back up over my nose, the head of the security detail is eye-fucking me. Okay? A young, uh, a young Caucasoid ape comes in there without a mask on, and this guy just yells at him. He's like, mask her out. Just get out. And he was very aggressive. He was ready to kick this guy's ass. Okay? So this guy leaves. Then this guy, this is what made me like the guy. This guy walks over to these two girls who are sitting 10 feet from me. Their bodies were a 9 and a 10. Like, I couldn't tell what their faces were. Their hair was about like a 7 and an 8. It was a, a brunette and a redhead. And he comes up to them and he said, Ladies, if y'all want to have a private conversation, you don't have to wear your masks. Because <laughs> he also wanted to see if their faces matched their bodies. You know? So uh, I went up to the guy and I actually talked to him. Uh, after that, about what was going on across the country, and I told him I'd be getting off the train in Portland, like right before elections, and what he thought that would be like. And he said they're private security. They are all former military and former law enforcement. Uh, some, like him, actually active duty law enforcement. So he's a Denver PD pig, so he's ahead of the security details. So they have a pretty good way of knitting this together. And better cops, there's a quick response terrorist group uh, in New York City, for instance, some of these cops are going to be getting headhunted by federal agencies and by private security. And then, you know, you'll have a liaison officer like the Air Force will put in a spotter in an infantry unit. Well, you'll have a local, uh, what remains of the local municipal police, a ranking officer will be inserted with a private security detail. But they're mainly just going to protect property and dignitaries. And the blueprint for this was in Baltimore. They, the, the BPD, which had 2,500 officers, only managed to defend 10 square blocks of Baltimore. It was the Mondawmin Shopping Center and the courthouse, okay? And then their nine precincts, and that was it. That was all they were able to defend. And that was the eighth largest police department in the 25th largest city. So that gives you an idea of uh, how it's going to go to mainly facility protection and then people who are troublemakers, like a, uh, a pale face who defends himself against one of these, uh, you know, one of these uh, ebon-hued gods, uh, then they'll use, uh, they'll use SWAT teams for that, the same guys that do it. So the guys that have been kicking down two doors a day, every day in Baltimore for 30 years, those two SWAT teams, they're now going to be used for you and me. That's what they're going to be for. And that's what they were always for, but now they're going to be purposely retooled for that. And, you know, it's the same thing. The day I got off the train in Pittsburgh this spring, this 18-year-old man was murdered in his bed in Montgomery County, Maryland, for the crime of owning a gun. Yeah, I remember that. He was, uh, he was shot through his window, and his girlfriend was in the bed 
with mm-hmm. him in his bedroom or say like sleeping with him and um the cops shot him through his window somehow they knew he was in his bed in the dark room and uh they plugged him and then they later said uh that he had like held a gun up and they saw it or some bizarre ridiculous story <laughs> right um but he was like a uh they like saw a, it because they happened to be uh standing at the window looking in his bedroom <laughs> right right yeah. and and they uh well he, he was like a crypto trader and he, he did a lot of programming and um there were some theories as to why he was killed or like who actually called the cops uh because his family said that none of them called the cops that's where they can tell none of their neighbors called called the cops like no one knows exactly why or how the cops got out there but they they got out there um and they did you know kill this guy and then uh covered it up basically and you know it, the, the story didn't receive any more national attention or even local attention in maryland i think and uh you know it, it seems pretty clear for for whatever reason this young man was uh uh you know outright assassinated by uh, by the cops but you know we have to hear endlessly about um people that <laughs> you try and get in fights with police officers and then it ends poorly for them you know as, as sort of the victims of the police complex whereas people that are clearly you know whacked as some kind of snuff operation are uh, are you know covered up because it doesn't fit the narrative right doesn't fit the police brutality narrative uh, it's not brutal i guess if you're swiftly executed while you're while you're half asleep so a year and a half ago my friend uh well, RJ was do another question hold, hold on Nick. i think uh james had a story uh just a year and a half ago my friend rj was murdered by the bpd they wouldn't even let his mother view the body they sent her a picture the uh she asked me she's uh, i mean she showed me the picture and uh or she explained the picture to me because it was everything. And she described the injuries to me. I used to, I coached his brother for 10 years. Uh, RJ actually defended my neighborhood from the purge during the 2015 riots. A group of five men with gas cans, baseball bats, lighters, and a smartphone came up his street. It was the only way. It was my street, too. It was the only way to get from uh, that quadrant of Northeast Baltimore to mine. And he went out there with his 9mm and he said, you guys are going to have to walk around a mile and go across Glen Arm because I'm not letting you pass here. Now, he, he saved his next door neighbor who was being stabbed to death by her black boyfriend. She, by, he disarmed this guy without hurting him, plugged her sucking chest wound, and then went back to this guy and counseled him on how not to get shot by the cops when they showed up. Because he realized she was a stupid bitch. She probably deserved to get stabbed, okay? So he just didn't want to see this guy also get shot on his mother's lawn. So this is the kind of guy that the Baltimore City cops beat to death 18 months ago, okay? And it never made anybody's news. Uh, And, you know, Mary asked me, she said, what do you think they did to my son? I was like, look, he's in fair condition. He's 44 years old. He knows how to fight, which is bad, because and that means they're just going to beat the shit out of him. I said, men that age that die of coronary arrest, it's getting beat to death. That's how you die when you're getting beat to death, when you're in good shape. You die of coronary arrest, or you die two days later of edema of the brain, but he's got a hard fucking head, okay? So he died of coronary arrest. And that's no news. You know, I know 
four other friends of friends and brothers of friends, white dudes that have been murdered by Maryland police departments um, over the past 30 years. And it never made the news. Nobody ever gave a shit, especially white people. The people that totally don't give a shit about white guys getting killed by cops is white people. Okay, because if you, yeah, like I got a friend that got crushed by a tree. You know, professional dudes get crushed by trees when they take them down. This guy built his own house. He knew what he was doing, but fate winks at you and then you get crushed. Everybody I told about this said, what did he do wrong? He's a doctor. Why, why didn't he hire a tree removal expert? I'm like, well, because he loses $100,000 a month. And the only reason why he can afford to stay in business is because he built his own house, doesn't have a mortgage, fixes his own cars, and does all his own work and gives guitar lessons to pay his heating and food bill. Okay? Because he makes zero money, even though he bills $8 million a year. Okay? So any working white man or fighting white man that ever gets killed by anybody, the rest of white America has always just sneered at them and laughed at them and said, what did they do to make it their fault? Okay, so sorry I went on that rant. Uh, I know Nick's got something <laughs> there. No, no, I mean, it's it's a good point. And I think, again, the, the, the stories out of Maryland, for whatever you know, reason, Maryland in particular seems to be a hotbed uh, for this. Another place I know of uh, would be like places like Bakersfield, California, or even, uh, you know, places out in like Montana or Wyoming where corrupt cops corrupt local officials kill people all the time and it gets swept under the rug or pe people laugh and sneer about it but uh you know it it seems like in, in forever reason certain areas of the country there are you know there is this trend of corrupt local sheriffs or cops that do quite a bit of uh weird stuff and uh they kind of skate by uh, with it and you know i think that a lot of the the talk of you know the problems of policing in America avoid all that conveniently and focus on these microcosms of events that seem to always have the same theme, nearly the same theme of uh, resisting arrest or causing a problem, you know, uh, and then escalating the situation. But Nick, yeah, I know you had something to say. James, I consider you to be. Basically, the premier anthropolo how do you say anthropologist 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 in America, and uh, I was wondering with respect to this new religious movement that's going on. These people say that they hate the but they haven't assassinated any cops yet. What exactly is is going on? Instead, they they target the businesses of working people. They target you know motorists, but they don't actually target the police. They maybe target some you know loose symbols of the system as far as you know maybe local federal buildings or something like this. But they don't actually physically target the police, despite all of their rhetoric. Can you explain? Well, they're not as stupid as they're supposed to be. <laughs> you know? uh, by the way, when I went to New Jersey, I was given a pith helmet, which I wore on safari in Baltimore. I did take a selfie in front of the Men's Nigerian Igbo Catholic Community Center. I want to wrap your head around that. So I'll have to send that to you. Uh, to send that to you. But, uh, and I was also given a doctorate in Negro Laji. Okay. Uh, it was actually like a, a graduation certificate, so I was very proud of that. But they, uh, it, it's just a prop. You know, this is like pro wrestling. 
you know, I mean, you can throw like, uh, you can throw your Coke at the back of Andre the Giant and, you know, not have to, he's out there playing a, playing a role. You don't have to worry about him beating you up. The, the, the cops already know that they're done. They, when I talked to this one New York City cop, he said, first of all, behind the lines, you see these Antifa guys shelling out thousands of dollars in 20s and 100s and 50s to these black thugs from all these other towns from all over the U.S., and they're giving them a brick. They so go throw the brick through that window. And, they, and we're like, well, what are we supposed to do about this? Well, well, one day they'll come down there and they're spray painting the street. And they'll ask their commanding officer, what are we supposed to do about that? Oh, you know, the higher ups haven't gotten back to us yet. Well, the higher ups every night in New York cut a deal with uh, basically the parameters of action that are going to be permitted by the rioters and the police. And they basically re... Uh, redraw the rules for this like uh, street theater role playing like every day he said like off of the riot lines he said and you can see this but you're not going to see the money changing hands on the news but we see it all the times he said off the riot lines we are getting attacked you know he said fellow police officers in pairs in cruisers getting attacked by you know impies of, of bantu hordesmen okay uh, in, in Brooklyn, in Queens, particularly Jamaica, Queens, and even in Manhattan. But it doesn't make the news because once you get this big show, like you had with the, uh, the Baltimore riots, with the big show, once you get that, then 99% of the surface area of the city is now totally off the radar, and anything could happen. So it gives the criminals a really good chance to reorder their business. So you'll see an increase in the numbers of criminals killing each other, and to the extent that somebody like me gets challenged to a fight by an enforcer or uh, gets threatened and told to stay off the street, or to the extent that a couple of cops going home after the shift get attacked by a group, that's street clearance. That's making sure that there's not witnesses with eyes on for what's about to happen, which is going to be you know, criminals killing criminals and reordering the drug network and everything. So there's very important stuff going on, but none of it's the clown show. With you know the threat of property damage, the fake fight between the cops and the uh, you know and the rioters and everything. In fact, one cop told me a story about that uh, Antifa and BLM got in a fight on the riot lines, and then they actually decide that was losing. Antifa, go figure, ends up losing to BLM, and he's like, none of them could fight. We were jeering them because none of them could fight. They all fought like girls, but we're not allowed to fight these guys. Okay, he said, but as soon as Antifa started to lose, they're like, hey, are you going to help us out? And he said, like, all oh, the cops are like, you know, you should have learned how to fight somewhere along the way. You know, so they're like rooting for BLM against Antifa. <laughs> you know, so it's, it's not, there might be property being burned, but that's going to be private businesses that are being burned to make way for corporate acquisitions. Okay, because municipal cities, they want to do business with corporations because that's who they get the kickback money from. Private operators, they don't get a bunch of kickback, uh, bunch of kickback money from. And uh, I know a guy who's actually hooked up with uh, a lot of business people in Pennsylvania, and he told me that almost no business in Pennsylvania qualified for bank loans over this thing. The only people that got it was Ruth Chris Steakhouse. Okay, uh, so the banks are actually betting against private businesses even being able to reboot. Uh, so this is, you know, this is like a cross between Baltimore and 15 and Charlotte and 17. 
where it's like they're taking both the playbooks and they're combining them. And this is going to effectively flip a lot of real estate. The, uh, the only uh, city I know of that can afford its own police force is New York. That's why the feds have sick these people, the NGOs, on the New York cops. And New York cops have told me that federal liaison officers that they trained under have told them that their bosses are throwing them under the rug and don't use any force and, and don't get arrested for a crime. Okay, So uh, that's because New York's the only city that could afford its own police department and wasn't uh, achieving its police manpower quotas through fighting the drug war. All right, so the municipal police force is a relic of the industrial age. It's going, it's, it's just got to be phased out. It, you know, it, there'll be different aspects of it to get cannibalized for the police enforcement of the future. But uh, most of this is all just a clown show, just to keep, get people mad. It's to try to get a guy to take up his 30-30 and go shoot a criminal and be labeled a white supremacist. That's what most of this is about. Uh, uh, as far as the news, the, the burning is basically a classic about American situation. Yeah. You know, uh, the high and the low against the middle. Yeah. You, you know what you're saying about uh, companies coming in realizing these, uh, these commercial arbitrage opportunities or, or commercial real estate opportunities. Now, I was actually in Pennsylvania. I won't say where, but I was in Pennsylvania um, recently, and I I'll say that I was not in one of the I was not in a part of Pennsylvania that has been hit especially hard the last few decades. Um, but I saw a, a a fair amount of foreclosure signs, houses that looked abandoned, townhomes that looked abandoned. Uh, storefronts that looked abandoned or, or severely dilapidated. Um, I I saw, uh, uh, you know, obviously with with Pennsylvania, you see a large amount of underutilized or derelict industrial and uh, appliance repair infrastructure. Uh, you see a great deal. It is operational, but you also see a lot that is in various states of uh, decline or abandonment. Um, some and you know I, I think that you're right to, to an extent that uh, COVID has decimated a large chunk of the economy in many places and you know uh, J.P. Morgan Chase for example uh, has denied uh, hundreds of thousands of lines of credit. Uh, I actually know several people who have um, had to deal with J.P. Morgan Chase and you know business owners, independent contractors who have been denied loans, lines of credit, and have had J.P. Morgan Chase as their primary banker for a long time. I know people who have talked about Citibank doing the same thing. Wells Fargo, which is a terrible organization, has been shafting people left and right, has basically... Uh, what about Bank of America, who gave allegedly a billion dollars to Black Lives Matter? Well, I haven't heard anything of B of A yet. B of A is a notoriously corrupt and stupid organization filled with uh, Pajits and other genetic mishaps but uh you know city wells fargo jp morgan they do a ton i mean just a ton of small business administration loans uh, of lines of credit and quietly under the sea uh, uh, you know under the rug and behind the scenes they have been completely decimating a lot of people now they're 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 marketing and um their propaganda would tell you otherwise, but if you actually talk to people, 
from all kind, from all walks of life, from all different industries and businesses, they have been uh, screwed and shafted by these uh, by these entities. And I think J.P. Morgan has come out and largely admitted that uh, they are no longer offering lines of credit for the most part for small businesses. And if you remember, um, maybe James, you heard about this when when Amazon was doing its HQ2 selection process. Um, they were uh, basically petitioning hundreds of municipalities and cities across the country to beg and grovel for the presence of Amazon in some meaningful aspect. So you had municipal governments, city governments, state governments uh, creating their own advertisements directed at Amazon. They were compiling massive amounts of data. Um, some, in some cases, data that is not readily available to uh, residents, is my understanding. Uh, and it's not really clear what kind of data was provided to Amazon. No one has, uh, uh, I think, to my knowledge, successfully launched a freedom of information attack or a request on, on that. Uh, no one has uh, really determined what exactly it is Amazon was looking for. Uh, but they did acquire a ton of data on hundreds of entities across the United States. And what it appears to be was Amazon was really trying to gain information on the wider American landscape because they ended up choosing probably the most uninspiring choices uh, imaginable. And they chose places everyone knew they were going to choose, uh, which were Arlington, Virginia and New York City. And obviously, New York didn't work out. But everyone knew ahead of time, and everyone was predicting for a long time that Arlington would be the uh, the next in D.C. would be the next sort of landing spot for uh, for Amazon. In fact, I think they're renaming a whole district of that uh, area down there, and they're recalling it National Landing, which is sort of a, a cynical joke. <laughs> but I wonder, you know, if, if you kind of if if you see that. Between the BLM stuff and places like Kenosha and and COVID, if this isn't and you know the the data mining operations that have taken place for the last few years by large corporate entities, if this isn't sort of the the we're approaching the eschaton, we're you know we're we're, we're kind of reaching the end here of the uh, I don't know the, the post-industrial small business man. If that if that also along with police. Is a dead idea. The small business, most um, familiar. If the faggot plague dictates didn't finish you off in a Molotov cocktail through your storefront, Will. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. if, if I can add a couple of things before you respond, James. Uh, and yeah, that that's pretty funny, Nick. But um, I'll let the audience take a moment. Um, I think yes, I agree with Hans. I think this is about consolidation. Uh, uh, Hans, you actually shared with us in one of our chats uh, somewhere uh, that Amazon was actually looking into these like decrepit malls that they've basically put out of business. As new oh yeah, they uh, uh, they are they're close to doing a deal with Simon Properties Group, yeah. and they are looking to attach themselves to around two hundred two hundred and seven, a little over two hundred, and is the number. Um, uh, commercial properties, and uh, you know th this is a mix of malls, warehouses, distribution centers for the malls, and 
basically the um, the decrepit and destroyed Sears complex that you know Sears was for the long time the anchor for a lot of these places and as Sears and uh, you know other stores like it collapsed a lot of these malls went down um, and the in the commercial infrastructure the industrial infrastructure surround you know that is tied to those malls has decayed or has gone down um, and yes that they were Amazon was looking to basically do a deal with Simon property group to lease them now I don't understand why they're just leasing them. I think that this is just an That's introduction to, to buying them. Yeah, they'll likely just. Well, buy them. I, I'll be honest. Make, I, I'm not going to miss. Which could make you know American Amazon the largest uh, culture. Well, it could make Amazon the largest commercial real estate owner in America. I think if they successfully bought some. Yeah. So the the trend is consolidation, and the last analogy I wanted to make was the uh, the term blockbuster has been applied many places obviously the video chain the movie uh with the lines going around the block uh and originally it was actually for i believe uh the bombs dropped on germany in world war ii but the uh the term that comes to mind in this context is when the red line laws were rolled back in the 60s on uh discriminating on who who could uh, or whom you'd allow into your neighborhood for housing or uh, home loans uh, when those were rolled back uh, when African Americans rolled into white neighborhoods uh, a lot of whites left and the property values um, took the course that they they took and this term blockbusting was actually applied to the intentional strategy to move blacks into white neighborhoods to drive down property prices and force whites to sell uh, to sell at fire sale prices and then buy them up on the cheap and then take over vast swathes of of a real estate so the, the whole block basically blockbusting uh and i don't know i can't prove it but what's going on right now with covid and blm looks a, a lot like that too so <clears throat> that was that was all my i wanted to add before uh, your thoughts on this james but some of this is an extension of the blockbusting for instance that ran its course in baltimore gentrification in the city has only been successful in one area uh they weren't able to take it neighborhood there's 35 neighborhoods in baltimore they tried gentrification with five of them and it's only really been successful you could say two canton and south baltimore but a couple of white people get murdered on the street and carjackings in south baltimore you know every year now because uh what happens is you'll get a whole vacant area because once all of the whites move out of the neighborhood the blacks don't want to live there anymore okay for one thing once all the whites move out there's no place you can buy food anymore because now all your customers are shoplifters you know so so you go out of business so you leave uh, so they're, uh, the blacks are always following the whites anyhow because they can't survive without them. You know, they literally, they're like the little bird that's got to ride around on the rhino's back and eat the parasites off its back. So, uh, but they at least have an idea of geographic and racial identity. They don't want to leave their neighborhood and they'll keep their they'll keep their neighborhood even if there's only two people left living on that street it's really hard to get rid of them uh so i see when when you see uh uh the fbi permitting antifa to rent u-haul trucks in chicago and load them up 
with black ghetto rioters and send them out to uh, to upper middle class subdivisions in surrounding areas of Illinois, okay, then you realize what's going on. Is this going to be a Dr. Zhivago situation at some point where you're not going to be allowed to live in your, uh, in your demi-mansion with your sterile wife, okay, and watch Netflix because that's going to be Section 8 because what do we really want is a city that's only 10% African-American and is about 50%, you know, elite and aspirational white, and then the agave people and the H-1B visa people from the subcontinent uh, to do all their scut work. I mean, they want the gleaming city in the center with all of the, uh, all the criminal people living on the outside. And I think this is a way of accelerating it because it, even with what they did in Baltimore, you, you just couldn't turn the city back uh, significantly with gentrification because you can lie to these people all you want that you're not going to get raped and murdered when you go out for your jog, but it's going to happen to somebody in that neighborhood when you go in there. And they can only use enclaving so much. The only reason why Canton can survive is because they've settled uh, 40,000 Latinos between the white Canton enclave and uh, Perkins Homes and uh, in Patterson Park where the blacks went. You know, so uh, I think this is an, ex the block busting is now going to go out into the suburbs. The suburbs uh, I've suspected for 30 years have always been designated as basically outlying ghettos with like what they have with the Syrians and the Africans and the Moroccans in France and places like that where, where the suburb is basically going to be the bad neighborhood. That, I mean, you don't want the center of your city being a bad neighborhood. It's only common sense. They're just trying to achieve it. Now, it's the weakest small business out there, the canary in the coal mine is martial arts schools. I know of 11 martial arts programs, uh, eight of which I was associated with, who are now out of business for good. Two of these went out of business because of BLM pressure. The other ones went out of business directly as a result of COVID because you, you, it, you can't close for two months and then pay that rent. And this is kind of important because these, are, these places will always be set up where there's cheap rent. You know, base, and a lot of them are refugee camps from numerous other martial arts schools that failed and then combined in like one, one martial arts school. And then you got five programs under the umbrella, the only guy that figured out how to pay the rent. Well, these, people, these places are dying off pretty quickly. Food business is actually doing really well. Neighborhood bars are in big trouble. And in a place like Baltimore, that's like the last culture you have left. It's the last place where like older men can go and talk. It's the last place where married couples go anywhere together and talk and talk with other people. And uh, it's actually a neighborhood bar, okay, with the proper owners, and most neighborhood bars, like the one I go to when I'm back in Baltimore County, that was a bar that my mother dragged my father out of when I was two years old, and it's still got the same owners, all right? The, the Raven Inn on Lock Raven Boulevard. I did podcasts from there before. They're wonderful people, and a, a good neighborhood bar like that, and the ones that stay in business for 10 or more years are good bars. They actually serve a security function. When you get jumped, you can go in there, Okay. When somebody gets jumped, leaving the bar, well, now everybody starts staggering their smoke breaks and acting as lookouts, and guys like me who don't smoke will go out and act as a lookout. 
Okay, so it actually serves a security function. A neighborhood in an urban area like that that's just trying to hold on, when it loses its neighborhood bars, then there's no place for you to duck into when five dindus jump you and one of them starts bricking you in the head. Okay, there's no place for you to go. Every place you could go, there's a plexiglass shield between you uh, and getting in there, and they got a buzzer on the door, and you're stuck in the street getting stomped out in, in the doorway. That's what happens when you lose your neighborhood bar. It becomes a really stark hunting zone. Um, so, uh, and, you know, economically, though, this all is to the good as far as the system of control goes. It's going to, uh, it's going to make it better to police remotely. It's going to make it uh, easier to police with outside contractors, people that don't really know the neighborhood. Um, when everything gets really lonely and you've got to do your drinking, you know, uh, on your front porch or in the doorway of like the liquor store where you bought the stuff, uh, then it actually becomes more easy to police because bars are also, I've hidden in bars from police that were hunting me before. Okay. Or like one cop that wanted to steal my paycheck in South Baltimore. I ended up hiding out in a bar with four bimbos. Okay. I didn't go over too good with the wife when I end up coming home 10 hours late from picking up my check and one of these bitches like literally like pushes me out into the gutter and they all speed up. Okay. So she thought I came home from an orgy or something, but saved me from getting beat up by this cop and losing my paycheck, you know, and uh, it was a bar, <laughs> you know, that I used that for. So uh, there's, and of course the martial arts school is an actual cultural center. And it's one of the few places where you could actually, you know, learn how to protect yourself from these assholes <laughs> that are out there. And they're going away. So when did Baltimore, if you talked about this before, maybe just again for audience, because Baltimore feels like a microcosm or, you know, one of the canaries in the coal mine in this sense for what's going on now. When did Baltimore really start to decline, and what were the early warning signs? Was it just an increase in the presence of, of African Americans? Was, you know, was it just an increase in the presence of uh, some other group or you know, large wow. corporations? What, what were like the first two or three warning signs that, in hindsight, should have sent off the alarm bells? Okay. Well, you can look at like something written by this Paul Kersey guy, and he'll show you that there's a gradual increase in crime when you bring the African-Americans in, okay? But the white communities were not under threat by blacks, okay? If you talk to guys in the Baltimore area that lived in the 50s and the 60s, if a black dude came in your neighborhood, you beat his ass, okay? You couldn't even work as a dishwasher as a law-abiding black man in a white neighborhood in East Baltimore because the local Pollocks would beat you up, okay? They wouldn't kill you. They wouldn't stomp you out. They wouldn't shoot you and stab you. But they punch you out and they dump you in the pond and tell you not to come back. Okay, you know, and this seemed to work out okay. In 1968, with the riots, okay, you also had uh, a federal act which made it essentially against the law. Okay, it hasn't been enforced a lot. There's a kid in Dakota, Georgia, that's facing this, I believe, but it will be enforced a lot in the future. And a lot of people figured it out early on and didn't break that law. Since 68, it has been against the law in this country for a white man to successfully defend himself against a person of color, okay? So that's just a fact. So what you got in 1968, there were over 60 members of my family, both sides, living in Baltimore City in 1968. That's when my parents left Baltimore City and got my little butt out into the county when I was five years old, 
Okay. Now, I was the last of 60 to 70 people in my family to move out of Baltimore City. I did that in 2018 because I got attacked 20 times, okay, in 2017, just trying to get back and forth to work. Okay. Uh, 68 was real big. 71, it got even, uh, you know, because now white people are just running. Blacks know that white people will not defend themselves. If they do, they'll get arrested by the cops. Okay. Uh, 71, Baltimore becomes the most violent city in the country because of the heroin input. The heroin gangs uh, did this. Then it kind of levels out, and there was portions of Baltimore. When I moved back to Baltimore in 1981, a place like Parkville was just like Southeast Portland was a year ago when I first lived there, a place where you could sleep on the sidewalk and nobody would mug you at night, okay, where it was a decent place. It's all working class people, maybe 10% black, okay, and uh, that, in 1985, in Baltimore, uh, you had the crack epidemic, which also, uh, that was a real weapon against the population of all races, and particularly against working men okay, that had families, were powerless to protect their families once this hit the street. Once I had to go to work, and there's thugs hanging out, and they know I left, and my family is locked in that house, and there's nobody there to protect them. Okay, and I got a five-year-old and a 13-year-old and a fat woman, and that's all I got in that house. Okay, um, that the, the lack of an extended family and not having any ethnic neighborhoods made the nuclear family man like me, we had to leave. I had to leave that house and let the bank take it so I could go to a place where I could defend my family, okay, and lock them away and expect the door not to get kicked in at night. You know, and that's not even the, the fact of me getting in and out of that neighborhood with these guys trying to attack me. So once the crack cocaine comes in, it eventually kind of goes away. Crack cocaine is not a big thing in very many places. But that model of doing your criminal business bleeds into the heroin market. And so by 1985, Baltimore in large part is a hunting zone. By 95, it's also a war zone. Because the world drugs is in full flame. I talked to big Mike Mancuso. Okay, he's got to be retired by now. So this is his real name. He uh, is a cop that qualified to join the FBI, but he joined the BPD instead. He would come in there and tell me about what he did for a living. He kicked in doors for a level. In two years, he said, he said, Jimmy, I had kicked in 710 doors in two years, drug raids. He said, half the time, there's no drugs in there. It's just somebody's got a beef with somebody else because he's dating this girl, and we get a tip, and we kick in the door. He said, so every week, I'm kicking in the doors of innocent people, and some of these people might try to defend themselves. It's very scary, and it doesn't feel good, okay? So this is what was going on in Baltimore in the 90s when I was basically being haunted and chased by thugs and cops, okay? constantly i did a litany of all these attacks on my person that period and it was ridiculous so the uh and i was breaking the law the way i was defending myself and everything i actually hid in the freezer one night uh from the police after i ran away from two black guys that had tried to mug me and i pulled a knife out to defend myself and they had this they had this rich white lady call the police on me with her walk around phone they didn't have cell phones back then well, anyhow and the cops came looking for me and this fat black girl that worked in the store and had a crush on me told them that nobody that fit my decision description worked there. And my night captain went along with it because I threw 
the frozen food freight, and he didn't want to have to take his guys off the grocery and put them on frozen food once I got drove away. That was that was my life in Baltimore City. Now in 2004, crime changed. In 2004, the most common type of crime was groups of black guys attacking. Uh, the, the most common type of interracial crime was groups of black guys attacking individual white guys or a white guy that's with a girl. The uh, and, and it just and now that's all it is. That's the only t that's the only type of interracial crime there is. Now the most common crime in Baltimore since the 1950s until now is groups of black guys attacking individual black guys. Okay, that is still the most common type of crime. Okay, but the most common type of interracial crime is basically your Colin Flaherty mob assault. You know, you know, ebony hyenas on some witless white boy. Okay, you know, but that. Uh, through that, they tried to do gentrification. The only place they successfully did it was in South Baltimore. But the only reason why that, and Canton, Canton, I already told you, they use a Latino buffer, okay, because the Latinos are eradicating. In East Baltimore, they are eradicating blacks. Uh, East Baltimore last year was the most violent precinct for a couple of months, and they stopped listing the race of the people being killed because it's agave killing ebony, okay? And that doesn't fit the, the narrative anywhere. And now, that was East Baltimore. Now, Northeast Baltimore and Essex, which is uh, Eastern Baltimore County, going towards Sparrows Point. You're going to be talking to about Sparrows Point on your next episode. Going towards Sparrows Point has become very violent because the black drug gangs have been driven out by MS-13. Now, the... The reason why South Baltimore worked, in 1968, it was the only neighborhood in Baltimore that didn't get leveled by the Baltimore riots, which got rid of all the white ethnic businesses, the Ukrainians, the Polacks, the Greeks, the Italians. Uh, I mean, you still had Little Italy, but it's just Mexicans cooking for white hipsters. You know, it's not Little Italy anymore. The, uh, now, what worked in South Baltimore, and I knew three people, and I dated one of them, who were part of the gentrification. One was my brother, one was my cousin, one was Nancy, the gorgeous airline stewardess, okay? It was buying two houses down the street from the store I worked at. Now, they successfully gentrified because of the guys that I drank at the bars with when I got off work, who all came, their grandparents and parents all came from West Virginia on the railroad to work at the marine terminals to work at Sparrows Point, and to work at the Domino Sugar Factory and for the railroad. These guys defended South Baltimore in 1968. It was the only neighborhood that did not fall. But they didn't have shit. Their, their houses were going for like $10,000, $20,000 in 1980. They were going for five hundred grand. And the last guys, indigenous guys in South Baltimore that I knew, they had to move to uh, Anne Arundel County or Baltimore County because they couldn't afford to pay their annual house taxes. So then immediately you started having Bantu Raiders coming in from uh, from Washington Boulevard, Martin Luther King Boulevard, and from uh, Cherry Hill, which is a bad part of, the, of Baltimore County, uh, across the Hanover Street Bridge. They started coming in, in the, along these narrow necks and raiding and killing. They even stabbed an off-duty homicide detective outside of a bar. Uh, two years ago, 24 tablecloth restaurants were closing in Baltimore every month all year long, okay? So gentrification didn't work. So the only way you could save a city like that is to give the people that you use to 
get rid of the ethnic whites, send them into the county, into the suburbs to attack those people. So then you can really start some gentrification because you can work with the Latinos. The Latinos will not mess with like white businesses very often. They realize that those employees, those owners, those customers are going to buy drugs from them. They'll even protect those people. They'll stab the shit out of, an, uh, out of a white trash guy like me, okay, that's not buying drugs from them, okay, just to clear the street, okay. But they will not, uh, they will not attract, attack your good, upstanding white people. So that's basically what's going to go on in every city in America. And I think Portland's been targeted because it Portland and Seattle were targeted because they were the safest mid-sized city and the safest big city in America. And New York was targeted because it was the only city that successfully defeated large-scale rampant street crime with its own tax base and its own police department. New York City PD was, as of last year, the seventh largest military in the world. Okay. So, uh, and... You know, so those th those three examples are basically going to set the stage for using the the Baltimore model for what because that was the, the DOJ was involved in the whole Baltimore purge thing. That was coordinated by three street gangs and the Department of Justice when that happened. You can see how social media posts to kill cops by the uh, by these three gangs were actually intricately coordinated with DOJ announcements to investigate the Baltimore City Police. At the time, you know, so uh, and you, the first thing that uh, the federal cops did was start investigating the BPD, you know, when they got when they, when they got in there, you know. So, in fact, you don't uh, police and municipal police that make arrests today. And I was told this two years ago by a big city police officer. He said, we cannot shoot anybody unless we have a supervising federal agent. He said, I've been on jobs where feds had hosed people down and kill them. And that shit gets buried. If a Fed kills somebody, it always gets buried. But if a local cop does it and he doesn't have a federal supervisor, like an ATF guy or an FBI guy, uh, to uh, run interference for him, he's getting hung out to dry because you got ambitious social justice warrior type uh, uh, local prosecutors. You know, so uh, it's going to be a much more complex model of policing and. Uh, you know, part of it's going to utilize, uh, you know, militias, uh, paramilitaries like BLM, Antifa. And so, I mean, they're shitty as paramilitaries go, but they'll eventually get better and they'll eventually have guns and stuff like that. So. You mentioned the Hispanics. Um, and of course, not all Hispanics are cartel members, but all cartels are Hispanic. <laughs> are we seeing... Um, are we seeing an increase of this stuff in places like Baltimore? Uh, I know they're already in Chicago. God forbid they get all the way up to Seattle, but I've heard that they are in Oregon and places like that uh, running, uh, doing human trafficking. Is this just the United States just being yet again completely incompetent, or is it the United States? Not the really. The, when, when I say that, it, it really means nothing anymore, but factions within the United States, like I think they've done with the drug war uh, and the war on terror, uh, they're almost using this as a justification for their existence, for more military intervention, more um, more inspections, more uh, border checks on things that they care about, obviously not things we care about, uh, more controls at the airports. 
is is something going on here where the cartels and the CIA and the FBI are, are sort of trying to move this model throughout the entire country so that they can just lock it down to this sort of quasi-police state slash cyber police state going forward. It's, it's a bit of a stretch perhaps, but the trend seems to be going towards more cartel activity throughout the United States. And as usual, the U.S. government has done absolutely nothing to stop it. I can give you a trajectory for, for Baltimore anyhow. They, how it went. they are the cartel. <laughs> that uh, Baltimore has still kept meth out. Whoever's running heroin in Baltimore has still kept meth out. That's pretty damn impressive. Now, the uh, in Baltimore, and when I started, uh, started training with a Puerto Rican fighter in 1992, he told me I love Baltimore because he, he, he was a member of the, uh, the Latin Kings in Chicago. And he used to fight out of the Windy City gym. He said, I love Baltimore because there's no Spicks here. There's just a couple of us Puerto Ricans. I hate Spicks. I hate wetbacks. Okay, there's a couple of flips. And then there's a couple of us Puerto Ricans. That's the way I like it. And he start, And then, like, three weeks later, three Mexicans try to stab him. And he sends one of them through a storefront window. And he breaks the other guy's elbow. And he runs to my house. And he's like, hey, Jimmy, the, the Mexicans are here. <laughs> you know, it's, a, it's all downhill from here. Okay, now... So that's like the first three Mexicans in Baltimore in 1992. By the late 90s, uh, sometimes half the people I'm taking the bus with are Mexicans, and everybody doing certain lines of work are Mexicans and Guatemalans and Hondurans and Nicaraguans, and from El Salvador. And uh, 2014, I'm training uh, a young man who was the fitness instructor for the juvenile prison in Baltimore. And he said, we have 50 black corrections officers, me, 500 inmates, 498 of them are black kids. One of them is an 80 pound Latino kid. And the other one's a 300 pound white kid. The white kid gets beaten and raped up by the staff and the other inmates constantly. Okay. Beaten, raped, beat up constantly, constant thing. This guy, I don't know what's going to be left of him. He said, nobody, nobody in the staff, none of those 498 Negroes will even look at this 80-pound Latino kid sideways. So when he told me that, I said, oh, MS-13 is on the ground. And these people know it because blacks are terrified of the Latinos. Complete horror, okay, is how they regard them. That's why that guy to pick the fight with me, he was coming into the neighborhood to crack some heads because a couple of these uh, Latino guys were either trying to sell dope to me or mug me one night when the gun carrier for that set was walking by. And that's how I got the truce with this black drug set, because they saw me facing down these Latino guys. Well, the day after Hazelnut Van Helsing tried to beat me up, there was these three big bruiser Guatemalan guys drinking bottles of malt liquor and Tecate in the house of a vacant yard in that neighborhood while I'm taking my walk around the neighborhood. Okay, And they weren't working. They were waiting. Okay, so you have in certain parts of Baltimore, we went from 1992 to 2012 with very little Latino crime and very little Latino crime victims. Okay, starting in 2014, they're mixing it up. Mr. Muhammad, a homeless, toothless, 65-year-old black friend of mine, got attacked by three Latino watermelon heads who were trying to molest a stripper that he was escorting across the street on the Baltimore block one night, and he fought him off, and he beat one of them to death. The BPD arrested him, 
But one of the guys that had been going to the Larry Flint Club, some rich lawyer, got a picture of it on his smartphone, and he got his smartphone into the courtroom, and Mr. Muhammad got it off for the crime. And he was back out on the street protecting white women um, from Latinos and other black men. But the uh, you've gone from having no Central Americans uh, to having them actually in two police precincts driving African-American gangs that are very vicious out of business and into extinction. And the BPD and the Baltimore Sun are afraid to even report it. Now, the other thing that happened three years ago, myself and a man named that I write of as Mescaline Franklin, uh, who was, uh, you know, he's a, he's a white identitarian guy that I coached for like 18 years. We were refused service in a Guatemalan, Salvadoran, Nicaraguan cuisine restaurant because we were Blancos. Okay, we were refused service. All right. And that was in 2014. So what's that? 30 years. In 30 years, we go from maybe one or two mopping a floor somewhere. And I've known two women who actually worked as volunteers for these organizations that get illegal aliens uh, driver's licenses and stuff. And they get their driver's licenses quicker than I can get my, my Maryland ID at the same DMV. They're going by me in the fast line. All right. And I'm having a hard time proving I'm an American citizen. They only have to prove that they're an American person. That's what the DMV thing says. They're citizens and persons. Persons get preference over citizens. So uh, 32 years is what I saw in Baltimore. James, and that's pretty far from Latino countries. Do you see parallels between the uh, people, the agave people, as you described them, south of the Rio Grande, and the Germanic peoples uh, at the you know at the time of the fall of the Roman Empire. Oh wow! You know what? That was uh, that's actually not a bad analogy. Okay, because they're uh, sometimes they come in for protection. Like I coached a young fighter whose uncle was killed and his father were killed in Mexico by cartels. So. He came to uh, he came to Washington D.C. Uh, three black dudes attacked him with baseball bats in the school bathroom. He cut one of the guys' guts out. Well, he got expelled from school. MS-13 tried to lay claim to him, so he came to Baltimore and trained with me because he's trying to get away from MS-13. So yeah, so you first get like people come in for protection from other savage tribes in their barbarian region, and then eventually, like this kid after the Baltimore riots. He was the only employee that reported the work, okay, for a chain of retail outlets. So they made him head of security, and they got him uh, firearms training, and they got him a gun permit, a concealed carry permit, and he's now the head of security for 18 of these stores. He made out like a bandit on that because, of course, you know, white people aren't going to defend their own shit in this country. They're a bunch of cowards. So he goes from refugee to mercenary. Just that one little microcosm right there. So, and I could definitely see it. You got, I, I haven't heard too much about Latino neighborhoods getting burned down by, uh, uh, by Antifa and BLM. I bet that would last about 10 seconds before some big fathead Mexican beat the shit out of some of these dindus and they all went running. Well, okay, there was so. a, in Chicago about two months ago, there, 
there was a cornucopia of blacks going on social media and complaining that they were, if they drove through certain streets in Chicago, uh, you know, immediately Mexicans would run up to their car and, and try and rip them out of the car and point guns at them. Like, you know, clearly the, the Hispanics were not having it. And I think that, you know, it's obviously what's going on that no one really talks about. A lot of these storefronts and little backroom businesses and apartment blocks and, and whatever, uh, they're paying protection rackets to gangs, to little mercenary groups, to just local thugs, to larger organizations. There's some grand or in complex hierarchy of obligations. It's almost like feudalism to some extent uh, of protection racket money that flows back and forth. But basically... You know, uh, these areas, these barrios, these neighborhoods, these streets, uh, they pay some amount of protection money. And I, I imagine it's uh, relative to the amount of money they take in pretty costly. So immediately there was a demand that uh, the protection money be put to good use. And so, you know, you saw that very quickly. And I think, uh, you know, there was one story where I guess a leader of the Latin Kings uh, was reaching out to the Chicago PD and telling the Chicago PD, don't come to these certain streets tomorrow we're going to take care of these people ourselves and you know i mean i don't know what the final death count or injury count was it was probably not reported but it certainly made blacks on social media really freaked out and scared that you know suddenly uh yeah like the the much promised race war between hispanics and blacks finally kicked off and they were immediately at a disadvantage and i think uh there was another. There was another absolutely hilarious video. I'll try and find it. it. Might might be gone. Where there's like I don't know five or six of these Hispanic dudes. They're basically just looking on lookout on a street corner in Chicago, and they all you know they're all armed. And uh, it's just one guy holding the camera, and he's basically doing the Hispanic version of the Richard Spencer "Become Who You Are" speech. It's, it's, he's basically like, you know, we got to become who we are, man. Like, we got to defend our people, man. Like, you know, we got to find ourselves, man. Well, it's this, true, man. man. The, the, they are, is, they are, are the alt-right land, movement. Everyone our, knows. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is our territory, you know, and it, it's, it's hilarious. And then, like, I think some black guy rolls up and they, in the video, and they immediately start shooting at him. And it's just, I mean, I don't think a lot of people really get. How, how bad some of the Compton too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, East LA is the quintessential example of blacks basically losing everything. And I think that, uh, you know, for, to some extent, I see BLM as actually the last gasp of black identity. Because I think on some level, blacks must realize that existentially they're doomed. Like, they have no future in America. They have absolutely no longevity other than what's kind of given to them. Um, their share of the population has remained relatively stagnant for decades. They've been overshadowed by other newcomers, you know, increasingly. They're no longer the main minority of America. It's now Hispanics. And, uh, you know, I think that BLM as a movement is really this, like, stupid but maybe not totally contrived uh, attempt at 
trying to see, uh, you know, if there is anything left for blacks to hang on to. And I think the reality is there isn't. Like they, you know, they. they well, it's no, pretty clear that yeah. BLM is a white liberal movement. That's also true, and I think to an extent there is an element of. I mean, obviously, there's a malicious element here at play, but I think there's enough dumb whites who are actually invested in this for the for a subconscious reason that they don't want to see. They they subconsciously are smart enough to see what's happening to blacks. Like blacks are are going to be gone. Like there's a very good chance that you know they they completely lose all cultural relevance within the next two decades, and they don't want to see that for some number of emotional reasons, uh, and so they're they're out there fighting on behalf of them because I think they're smart enough and nuanced enough to see that uh, Hispanics and other newcomers, you know, the subcontinentals and Asians in general and Africans and South Americans. Eastern Euros, you know, basically all the the collection of of trash from around the world is is completely rooted themselves in America, and now they're you know they're very close to eclipsing the old relationship that the white class had with blacks, where you know America was really just a place of white and blacks, and blacks had a certain cultural identity they could yes, fit into, yeah. right? They they were the minority. They were the, the minority. The thing is, yeah. the white liberal will not know what to do when it's no longer obvious who the lowest form of humanoid in America is. Right. They will struggle with this to the very end. I think that's true. Maybe they are the uh, lowest they form of humanoid. The, they can't handle... No, well, the, 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 the white liberal is spiritually... You know, it's a spiritual... Nigger. It is the lowest form of life. Every this is fair. Completely agree. But, <laughs> the, the, there, there is no debate on that question. However, the white liberal, when when the things become gray, when you have true racial cacophony and racial anarchy, and you have, have the competent brown who are able to assemble, you know, military force. In the case of you know what will be, I, I can I can easily foresee a future where you have basically you know Latin cartels protecting you know white system installations. That that is a future that I envision in America. Oh yeah. Well, yeah, th- th- I think that's totally plausible because you know the American upper class has done that before. We uh, we've talked about this, and the American upper class had its dalliances with the National Crime Syndicate many a time. And on the one hand, while they were fighting the National Crime Syndicate, they were, you know, Luciano, Lansky, Giancarlo, all, all, all these, uh, all these characters were useful. They were, they were useful goons for foreign coups. They were useful goons for, for influence peddling in post-war Italy, and they were useful goons for protecting American infrastructure from saboteurs during the war down at the docks in New York City. The docks and Boston and, and you know so on and so forth. Uh, the American upper class, the American elite, whatever form it takes, uh, has had no problem in uh, back dealing or double dealing with its supposed enemies and rivals. So I could easily see a future where, as you know, as James is predicting, the American police force, the American public security service really collapses uh, for a number of reasons and causes. 
you know, as it, it's replaced with, uh, you know, a sort of quasi backroom uh, buy off with hardened criminal organizations that have, you know, real organizational structure, hierarchy, rank, and so forth. Organized deployment of violence is the bedrock of power. I mean, the ability to competently deploy violence on an organized scale is essential. And as for the Latinos or Latinx or uh, Agave people, bean people, um, you know, the new Teutonic barbarians of, of the Rio Grande. And like these people are the only class in America that is capable of deploying violence that is completely immune to the new religion. They have no, they have no dog in that fight. Who well, will win? I, I mean, I, 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 yeah. to me, it's obvious. I think uh, it's similar. You know, there's several cases in, in history like this, and many of them center around uh, the Greco-Roman world. Uh, and actually, the Chinese were infamous for this sort of behavior as well. Um, but, uh, you know, the Greeks, for a long time, employed, the uh, under Alexander, for example, employed the usage of Thracian, Illyrians, uh, you know, various Asiatic peoples from Asia Minor, Sogdians, Scythians, and so forth, for a variety of military and police purposes, you know, he created local relationships with what you basically call thugs in Bactria, which was the rise of the Seleucid Empire, and in, you know, what would later become, you know, post-Alexander Persia, and post-Alexander West India, and all these places, uh, you know, the Romans did, did the same thing repeatedly. I mean, you know, numerous, numerous times. Uh, I, I would say the, the greatest Roman example would obviously be the Germans, uh, Visigoths and so forth, who were, who formed a, both an army, a farming class, and a potential under, you know, revolutionary underclass that later betrayed the Roman Empire. Uh, but people forget that the Roman Empire was actually uh, employing and even inculcating uh, people that we, I think the archaeologists are confident, were early Hunnic uh, scouts or early Hunnic tribes. Uh, the Hunnic, you know, Attila the Han and, and his Huns, uh, some speculate as the Zhongnu from Chinese history, uh, you know, there's not sure who they really were. Uh, but the Huns had been, you know, actually arriving in Europe over a very long period of time. It wasn't sudden. And the Huns had been coming into the Roman Empire even when it was still stable, and uh, offering to work for the Romans, uh, and even you know becoming part of Roman society, they were good police officers in, in Roman cities. They were good military advisors and trainers. They, they you know they they didn't really have any sort of qualms about enacting severe violence on people. They were they seemed to be the perfect enforcers. Um, and, and as the Hunnic presence grew in, in Roman Europe. Um, this relationship went sour, right? And then eventually, you know, the, the realization, by the time the Roman Empire is actually in full collapse, there's a realization that the Huns that they'd been employing for some length of time were actually scouts. These were not sort of nomads or, or refugees. These were scouting parties and infiltrators from a approaching army that had been pillaging and plundering and amalgamating others into its ranks for decades. 
even before Attila was born, the Huns were on their way into Europe. Um, so, you know, I, I see it more. I see it similar to that. You know, where there's basically there's going to be some kind of arrangement between the upper class, who are uh, you know decadent and in decline and, and not really invested in the future of society, which is you can describe fourth century Roman uh, elites certainly that way, and uh, they they invest in a relationship with what we would call you know kind of roaming bands of criminals and. Uh, outlaws in exchange for stability and protection and uh, enforcement because you have to remember there was this uh, epidemic of ghost armies at the time it was discovered that hundreds of thousands of supposed Roman soldiers didn't really exist and uh, you know the, the, all these supposed generals didn't really exist and there was you know it was basically just total collapse Rome actually had no real military uh, by the fourth century um, and they were reliant on. Visigoths. I'd like to ask James a question here yeah, in a yeah. second, Hans. Well, you know they were reliant on Visigoths and Huns. And I think. Uh, I, I, yeah. I, I think what Hans is saying is is very important, and I want to put this to James, and that is that in the context of all this, my personal take is that this new religion does not have a very bright future. I think, if anything, we're seeing the end of an old religion. I mean, and it's kind of final stage that you you see a new great awakening happening but with all this being said and the stage set as far as control of territory and ethnic violence in america i don't see a, a great future i mean the white liberal that has a future is only going to be the white liberal with serious power connection you know they're going to be driven out of the cities and they're going to be driven into places in which they are seen as enemies and rightfully so what, James, do you think is the future of this new uh, negrolatry? Oh. This, new, this new, the new cult? Yeah, they, it, uh, of course, as, uh, as religions go, it's miserable, and it seems to be, uh, you know, you, you have the mask of contrition, you know, you have the nailing, uh, uh, you, you have, you know, surely Catholic levels of guilt. You have original sin. You know, we have... Uh, the uh, the false idea that almost everybody in this country believes that only black people were enslaved in this country, and it and it's it's this uh, unerasable original sin. So I think you're right. This is uh, where this type of Western liberal atheism goes. It's really kind of like the final step in the devolution of Christianity. But uh, as as this weird civics, but I think what. Uh, what Hans was saying, uh, you know, there were so many, there were so many tribes. Uh, there was one tribe I was really interested in called the Haruls, okay, that sometimes worked as mercenaries alongside uh, uh, the Huns and the Alans, and I couldn't figure out whether they were Germanic or not. But anyhow, I think that you're going, as you see American servicemen uh, getting out of the regular service and going into military contracting overseas, I think you're going to see um, uh, military men from places like Brazil, Mexico, uh, other nations are going to be working as military and civilian security contractors in this country. And the one police officer I talked to who was part of a uh, rapid response anti-terrorism unit told me that uh, based on discussions he had with his training, federal training officers, 
he thinks eventually that uh, units like his will end up being used in different parts of the country uh, against uh, indigenous Americans. Uh, you know, that, that already so you happens. Have to, I mean, there, there have been right, a lot know, of people so. who have come forward from uh, close circles in the military what? To, to talk about yeah, so this whole how... Thing of shuffling in people from other areas. It's just going to intensify. Yeah. Do you think that you'll see pale-faced trigger pullers joining up with Latino cartels? Oh, yeah. Yeah. If they're, if they're accepted, you know, if they're... Uh, if uh, if they could get if they could gain acceptance, it'll be a point. It'll be a place where you could uh, do something because you can't you can't make a Caucasian gang. I mean, if you look at what happens with prison gangs, you know they don't give a shit what the Latino prison gangs and the black prison gangs do. But all, almost all of the federal and corrections law enforcement activity to undermine organized criminal activity in prisons is done against the uh the caucasian prison gangs so yeah you can't uh whites aren't allowed to organize below the governmental uh level or only as a contractor ngo affiliated with the government you know so yeah so if you want to be part of something organized that wasn't uh part of uh you know this uh big evil bureaucracy yeah i guess that would probably be the place to go i mean the people who would really want white trigger pullers would be black gangs because uh you know, there's this mythological level of awe that uh, black guys have in regard to white men who are not afraid of them. You know, it's like, it's just incredible. You know, that is, I've experienced myself as a little old twerp amongst veritable giants half my age. Uh, you know, they treat me like I'm Pol Pot or something, you know. Like, <laughs> you know, so, so yeah, I think that uh, you'll have... Uh, Violent-minded uh, pale faces like that will will, will go into uh, other ethnic gangs and all. And uh, I think uh, professionally, you'll have companies like Triple Canopy uh, that employ a lot of Latino and maybe even Pakistani uh, military contractors uh, to uh, work in the United States, uh, taking care of uh, disarmament and stuff like that. Whenever it comes about. Uh, as soon as they can find some nascent white supremacists to shoot people up, uh, you know, they could start uh, going that route. But I've already confronted, uh, I ran into military contractors in Baltimore during the riots. They told me to get inside. I was walking home from a bar. And, uh, you know, <laughs> I don't know there, who the hell these guys were. There were accusations of military contractors on the ground in Katrina. Uh, or, I'm sorry, New Orleans after uh, Hurricane yeah. Katrina back in 06. Um, yeah. You know, I think it's very obvious that... I, I lived there right after the hurricane. I heard a lot of stories about that. Yeah. There, it, it was know, a very there, real there, thing. There and they, they were performing various summary executions. Yeah. I mean, that shit was going down there, very, very similar to the kind of thing that James has described previously... You know, when you get a situation like this of, of any kind of civil unrest, it provides cover for scores to be settled. Wait, wait a minute. Wait. You, you went to New Orleans after the hurricane? What was it? Cheap rent? What's, what was the reason there? I lived there. Well, I'm not, not going to go into detail, but I, I lived there after the hurricane, yeah. Why is my question? But, okay, a a wife of a police officer 
during the riots told me that his commanding officer told him that they did not have to defend the Orioles Park at, at Camden Yards, and they didn't have to defend the Raven Stadium because the owners of those facilities had hired military contractors and they had snipers there. So they even told the cops, don't even go in there. <laughs> it's like a kill box. <laughs> yeah, and that was six years ago. What, five years ago? Yeah. So, do you do you see you know the the Baltimoreization of American cities sort of proceeding uh, without any local ob objection to it? Uh, you know. Do you, do you see the locals potentially forming militias? Do you see people uh, trying to vote in representatives who are more radical or more stern in their opposition to this? Or do you see people just leaving and abandoning these areas as fast as they can and trying to rebuild elsewhere? Yes, no, no militias. Look, you can't start a men's fitness club and then get in a fight with Antifa and not go to jail as a race criminal, okay? You just can't do that. I've I, you got to be very careful about even coaching or instructing people on how to fight anymore. Uh, uh, because what's going to come down is uh, if I coach somebody and they hit somebody defending themselves, they knock them out. If I would say I was financially successful from this activity, I would get sued. I might even be part of a class action lawsuit, a target of a class action lawsuit. Uh, so no, you're not going to have, uh, th there's no way to organize. I mean, I've canceled people so many times. You cannot give your group a name. You can't organize. It's another reason to shut down local bars because it's the best place you could go to basically conduct a clearinghouse on who's getting robbed where, where are the breaking enterings, where are the home invasions, where do we need to walk around, you know. Because actually, if you could just get a fit man to just take a walk a few times a day around a block in a bad neighborhood, it all of a sudden isn't a bad neighborhood anymore, okay? That's really all it takes. Uh so you don't need militias for that because the, the type of crime that we face is not something that would been had been successful crime in any in any previous period. Guys that worked at Sparrows Point or the Marine Terminals in the 1950s would laugh at this kind of crime. They would just beat them up. These are guys that went to work as a group. Okay, you had a gang getting off of work. Okay, so you better not have been in their neighborhood busting up their windshields because the kids would spy on you. You know, so. The uh, and one of the reasons for police, th th where police really kick off in this country, is with the coal and iron police in Pennsylvania, and their main job is to terrorize the white working man, okay, to rape his daughter when he's in the coal mine, to beat up and rob his wife when he's in the coal mine, to beat up his kids who were trying to defend his sister and his mother while he's in the coal mine. Okay, and then and then well, even let's then, explain why that was the case. I mean, I'm I'm not yeah. defending that, uh, but it it just it wasn't out of sheer malice. It was really to control the workforce, for, as you because said before, they're the, they're to the strike. They're the lackeys of capitalism. They're uh, the yeah, they're the they're the pigs of the system. Yeah, the nineteen six in eighteen sixty five. Okay, uh, before the phony amendment that supposedly abolished slavery. Okay, but it didn't. It just abolished slavery, except for the case of criminals. Uh, in 1865, the Pennsylvania legislator passed a law permitting private companies to raise their own police forces and enforce their own laws. And you didn't even get paid in money. One of my uh, former wife's uncles actually worked in one of these coal mines. 
you didn't even get paid money. You got paid in prison script. So this is, uh, and it's coming around again. They're canceling. It's hard. Everywhere I go in five different states, they don't have change because banks aren't giving out change. Uh, Amtrak doesn't take cash. So a lot of places aren't taking cash anymore. Yeah, what is that change thing? Like they're they're blaming COVID for a change shortage. Soon it's going to be a bill shortage. This is bullshit. They're saying money's dirty. I can't even give my grandchildren cash because you know my daughter-in-law. Okay. And even Emma, I can't give her cash without uh, it getting intercepted and then washed in dishwater and antibacterial soap because it carries a deadly disease. Okay? I'm like, look, I got this $50 bill right from the back. No, it's still filthy and it's carrying the COVID. But it's an excuse. It's a way to try to get you paid and like basically system credit. That's, what, that's right. That, that's what it is. Currency. But that's what the coal and mining police were about. But the thing is, is the main reason why you had these municipal police forces in mostly mid-sized cities was to really suppress the gangs of physically fit, tough working men, okay? They would never have permitted people from the country in the South to be their ages. You needed a police force to make that happen. You had to have somebody because these black guys coming in from the country were not going to be fighting uh, a bunch of Polish, Lithuanian, Greek, and Italian knuckleheads, okay, out of the factories. That wasn't happening. You needed cops to do that. You needed cops to at least say, look, if you beat these black fellows up, we're going to arrest you, okay? That's what you needed. And, I mean, every time a, a black guy tries to rob me or attack me, he gets on the phone and calls the police on me, okay? I mean, that's standard. These people have known for a long while that, yeah, police might recreationally beat the shit out of them for practice and for fun because they need an enemy, okay? But they've always known that the policeman is their protection against the white man because one-on-one, it doesn't work. It just doesn't work. These guys are so psychologically damaged. Just training them as fighters is difficult because they don't have the mental strength because they grew up without a father, with their mother punching them in the face when they're two years old in the high chair. Punch them in the face in public when they're two years old. And I've seen it dozens of times. You know, so you're not talking about people like Africans might make fine soldiers, okay? When, you know, when they're led by good officers, African troops tend to make good soldiers. But uh, in, in, in a situation where they don't have fathers and they're basically mixed-race mongrels and they're raised by these... Uh, by these mothers to basically argue with the police so mom could cash in on a lawsuit when the kid finally gets shot, uh, I mean, then they're not effective combatants and they know it. They just, there's nothing more terrifying to them than a white man that does not fear them. Most white men, like, give off fear scent whenever they're anywhere around a black guy and they can tell it. And it brings out the worst in them. It kind of makes them like dogs, you know, like a dog that wants to attack a running kid. Okay, but it, you can uh, immediately just by not being afraid and being alone and walking into a bar of 50 black dudes, you're immediately going to earn some fans. I'm like, oh, how many people has this guy killed? Okay, first question is, is he a cop? So somebody sent over to test see if you're a cop. Well, shit, he's not a cop. <laughs> okay, well, what the hell is the matter with this guy? Okay, so this is, and the most feared black men, the guys that are generally enforcers, are guys that behave. Like uh, like one white men that don't take shit from people, they're quiet, 
They don't start any trouble. And uh, they don't engage in verbal escalation. They let you do all the crazy stuff you want to do. And then they just take you out. I mean, so it's there, there's no separate black and white culture in this in this country. They're basically African-Americans in this country are basically just like our abused step stepbrothers and sisters. You know, they're just uh, they can't survive without us. Uh, liberal white people can't survive without them as their pets and their and, and their sex slaves and stuff. You know, I mean, I just uh, uh, so I don't uh, I think the big question is, you know, as Nick and uh, Hans point out, the big question is what's going to happen with these cohesive groups like the Latinos, you know, to actually have the ability to uh, engage in uh, organized aggression and don't have uh, very deep inhibitions against it. I'll be honest, this is not looking good um, for team. I think it's looking great for, for my, I mean, yeah. <laughs> my it's going to be, I'll have to disagree with that. <laughs> well, well, my, my point, my, my point is, look, it, people, we have in this pandemic, it was proven that the American population is 95, has 95% herd immunity to reality. Yeah. Most people believe in stuff in this country that never happened. They believe this country is something that it isn't. Now, the, uh, and it's like all these conservative people that are so-called on the right, they want schools to open back up. Are you crazy? This is where your kids, I, uh, this is where Antifa was born. This is where your kids were trained to hate you. And you want the schools to open back I, I up? I saw a, a so really funny kids can uh, hate you? infographic. You guys know that, like, the brain meme where it's like, okay, uh, shutting down schools because of COVID. That's like micro brain. It's smaller than the skull. And then, like, you know, normal brain, yeah, we should, we should open up the schools, let the kids uh, learn again. And then God brain, the brain that's like shining out through the skull. Don't have the kids go back to school because exactly what you just said, that's where the left indoctrinates these kids. Don't open them yeah. up. Why I think it's a good thing with what's going on in this country. I think the maximum possible perceivers of reality in the European American population is 10%. I think the absolute best we could have as far as people that could actually see reality and not melt down and behave rationally is 10%. But I think we're around 1% at best. At best, I think we're at about 1%. I think with every mid-sized city in America facing some kind of riot like this and the defund the police movement, we could possibly get to 4% of Caucasian America actually capable of looking at reality and not sucking their thumb and running for a bowl of Prozac. Right, that's what I'm saying, because there's no political solution. This is a done deal. This is just on a long, rocky road. But what I'm interested in is cultural preservation, where you could have enough people to actually preserve some kind of identity, some kind of history, uh, some kind of appreciation for the past instead of the phony stuff that, you know, that people believe that's a bunch of lies. That's what I'm talking about. I mean, you know, anybody that believes, I mean, democracy is Satanism to me. I mean, that, this is the, the, the handbook I was reading for the fighting man of World, of World War II written in 1943. All it talks about 
is promoting democracy around the world. And it was supposed to be a constitutional republic that these soldiers were fighting for, okay? Everything that's going on now was in that playbook, Psychology of the Fighting Man, 1943, written by a committee of, of, of U.S. Army psychologists, okay? The, uh, there's, there's no political solution because all democracy is is a way for the oligarchy to not take the blame for all, all the policies that they're going to get enacted through the brainwashed masses. You know, most people are just goddamn stupid. You know, 90% of them are just hopelessly stupid and cannot be awakened. And if they were awakened, they would immediately go insane. It's like trying to, trying to tell your wife or your girlfriend what you know. If she believes you, it's her brain like will melt. Lovecraft. Yeah, that, that's it. You have... Seriously, that's that's the best thing. The Lovecraft analogy there. I think we only have ten percent potential of being able to look at reality, okay, and not melt down. You know, and I think that's a lot of a lot of what drug addiction is in this country, and a lot of why the government promotes drug addiction so stridently, okay, is because uh, they just they need to keep it under one percent. Because eventually uh, they want something that's going to, the people that are in this bureaucracy want it to grow forever so that their children and great-grandchildren will have a job in the growing security apparatus because they know they're strip mining everything outside of it. So they really want to reduce the percentage of people who are even capable of perceiving reality without melting down. Okay, so that's why I think what's going on, okay, if this doesn't wake you up, then you want somebody that could be awakened anyhow. So we're going to see what the maximum number of rational Americans, you know, there are. And, you know, uh, it's not going to be 10%. I doubt if it will be 5 but we'll never know the numbers. But uh, I can tell you my books on, like, urban violence and stuff, which used to never sell at all, I'm actually selling some of them. I had my best month, like, two months ago. I think I made $800 two months ago. Let, let's That's mention like the, the title money of that I've book. Made in two years. And you also you know? have some new ones. So what, what's the name of that book? And yeah. you have a couple new ones, James. Oh, well, it's, uh, anything under the harm city category. I mean, there's, there's like 30 of them, you know, but uh, what's your best up one? In Indian country. Waking up in Indian country is probably the best one. Okay. Uh, the, uh, because it fits, you know, it's something I wrote right here to the Baltimore riots. And I used to go out and actually study the ground. What was the ground weather? You can tell what happened outside last night. If Tanisha lost a track while she was duking it out with Shaniqua, okay, you didn't have to be out there to see that. You walk down the street and you'll find her tracks right there, okay? I find a dead rat on the curb with his legs broken and a, and a smartphone with a cracked screen laid out on that dead rat's chest. Then I know somebody's just been served a death warrant, okay, in the neighborhood. You know, so that that's kind of what that that book is about, how you can walk around your neighborhood and uh, and go back and forth to work and perceive actually what's going on around you crime wise, because uh, the news is just there to mislead you. Yeah. So that waking up in Indian country would be the book that I would. James, our, our audience consists of people from various walks of life. I mean. Some of the listeners to this program have seen some serious shit. Uh, others have grown up in nice places with nice families and have never had to confront this, but looking at the world around them and looking at the decline of their country, they've been forced to. 
they've been forced to deal with something that you know was never in the cards for them. They were supposed to be a nice career ahead of them, an alley of their own, and that's not going to happen. I mean, at least it's not going to happen in the way they thought it was going to. Right. I would like uh, for you to give some advice to people who have never had to deal with this kind of shit, who have never had to live among animals, and yeah. how it is that they should confront what will be happening in the years to come and prepare themselves for it. Sure, that's real easy. I could do bullet points. And, 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 not, just, and not just animals, but people who are going to stab them in the back. That, that's what actually really bothers me the most because we know whom to shoot, but we, we're afraid to shoot because if we do that, you know, and this is going actually to a video that James recently put out with, uh, uh, he called it uh, Hobo uh, History. Uh, quite a good channel, it's actually. Not mine. It's, I, I got to tell you, it's not mine. It's a Jamaican guy. Guy okay. who was born in Jamaica, who I coach. All right. Because I would never do such a thing. He said, how do you think about doing this with me in the current climate? I said, look, dude, I plan on bathing in the goodness of your ebb and glow. I would never put this stuff out as uh, as a white man. I told him, I said, look, one of his friends tried to pull a red, one, not a friend, a neighbor. He's the only black man that lives in the town in Maryland where he lives in, and he gets along with all these rednecks. Fine. Jamaicans are basically rednecks. Uh, he had a property dispute with one of his neighbors, and that guy tried to pull a red flag warrant on him because Oliver had asked him some advice on how to clean his antique rifle that he had. Uh and I told him, I said, the only reason why you're alive is because of your race. Because red flag warrants that get triggered against men like me in this state result in the boot and shoot. 4.30, 4.44 in the morning. So this is Oliver's thing. You know, it's like, uh, and him and the listeners on the YouTube channel, Hobo History, it was his idea for the title, Hobo History. Uh, he just told me, he said, like, talking to you after training is more interesting than any of the history podcasts I listen to. Yep. So he said, I, I want to do it. He got a whole bunch of cheap COVID discount cameras. I mean, he's got stuff that's worth like $20,000 a pop laying around in his little studio. Wait, wait, wait. You mean like uh, liberated from wait. stores discount or... I'm not even going to no, ask people that. that you know, but. People that went out of business. Oh, guys okay. that were just selling all their stuff off because of the COVID thing. Mm-hmm. A lot of small filmmakers lost their business. They couldn't get, They couldn't put makeup on anybody. Yeah, okay? They yeah. couldn't get together and film a, a, a spot for anybody. Yeah. Okay, So... Uh, so he bought, he bought stuff that was worth twenty thousand for two hundred bucks. You know, I mean, it's what he does. He's he's got a fleet of cars in his backyard that he bought from people that lost their jobs. Yeah. Okay. You know, so he's just a smart guy in the um, cannib- in the cannibal economy. And not to, you know, and, but, and I, I I like Nick's question, so not to take away from it. I, I was just trying to add to it. Um, in yeah, that so we, video, we filmed twenty of. Them. We okay. filmed twenty of. Them. In one of the videos, you mentioned that the the officers actually were not trained historically to fight on the front lines. They were trained to shoot the soldiers or chop their heads off if they got out of line. And that's what this feels like right now. I mean, we're told what to do, and if we try to defend ourselves, as we've talked about on this show, we get in trouble. And so... I think it's more than just you're in the jungle by yourself. You You are being watched by an oppressive ruling class that wants you subjugated how do you deal with that and a lot of people don't even realize it so please give us some advice here and you're and you're being watched by people of your own class who want to live up to the expectations of the ruling class okay uh the number one 
Okay. Is, Janissaries. <laughs> number one is you're not Dr. Doolittle. Do not talk to the animals. Okay. You, when threatened, when questioned, when accused, you never talk to a Negro that you don't know that you're not friends with. Okay. You never talk to a strange Negro that that initiates conversation with you. And that especially goes if you're a black man. If if you've got a couple of black listeners on here, hopefully you guys already know. You never talk to a strange black man that starts accusing you of something. Okay. That starts asking you if you're a racist. Okay. Anything. You you just you just don't. You do not do it. That whole that whole subset of our American culture achieves justification uh, of violence and intensity and escalation of a violence through verbal escalation, through verbal agitation, and they will hit a point where they cannot help themselves. They've been conditioned and trained to this. This is not an intelligent strategy. It's something they do emotional, okay? That, that's what they are. They're, you know, they're essentially female psychologically when, if you're looking at it from a stoic point of view. Now, uh, the next thing is if you are a woke devil, okay, like Nick, okay, uh, if you find yourself a nice lady, uh, do not try to get her to believe what you believe, okay? I mean, you need to approach your woman like the old Italian mobsters used to handle their women. They intentionally didn't tell them, okay, what their business was. You're a man, you're intelligent, what's in your mind is your business. Your woman can't handle it. Okay, maybe you marry Mrs. Jarvik's daughter or something like that. She's got 180 IQ, and then maybe even then she can't handle it because she's a woman and she's going to melt down. And it's the problem with why most men melt down is because they think there's got to be a solution that good and right will eventually prevail, and it does not. It always fails, okay? But it always gets a chance to reboot. It doesn't get a chance to reboot if, if you commit suicide. Uh, trying to fight it and, and screaming for change. So you cannot tell, uh, you got to be really careful how you express your uh, opinions uh, about what's going on in these times of change with people in your family. Don't even do it at work. Uh, I, I know people who have lost jobs over this, over just letting people know what their political beliefs were. People have gotten fired for voting for Trump. All right. This I currently know four people who, in the past year and a half, have lost jobs or job opportunities that they had locked in because they were white men. Okay. So that's out there. You're on the chopping block. Uh, you're on the chopping block as it is. So do not ever discuss uh, uh, politics or news or anything with uh, your co-workers, they're all backstabbers, they're all going to throw you under the bus. Half of your family will probably disown you or think you're insane, and some of them will even turn you in, okay? They might even turn you into your employer. I, I don't, I, you know, I don't know how bad it can get. I can tell you, I started filming Hobo History with Oliver because my family didn't want me staying with them during the epidemic. I had no place to go back to in Baltimore, okay? Uh he said, you always got a place to lay your head wherever I am. So I, I went there. Um, and then, you know, I had a, one, of, one of my girlfriends I could stay with. Okay. The other one, her daughter wouldn't let me around because I'm carrying the disease. But uh, the biggest thing you could do is not let people know what's in your mind. Uh, I did a book called The Giver. 
which is actually a contemporary reflection on the Handbook for Living by Epictetus, okay, who was, uh, he, was born, he was born a slave. And even the Emperor Hadrian ended up coming for his advice. And he was a, he was a mid-period Stoic. I pretty much hate philosophy, uh, but I can stomach him and Marcus Aurelius. I'd read Epictetus or Marcus Aurelius, and you, you just absolutely can't uh, get into arguments. I think what you're doing here with the myths of the 20th century, you're giving people a platform for discussions. You can't talk like this with people that aren't already part of the uh, the ostracized, uh, you know, uh, uh, contrarians. Uh, you can't. I mean, it's just, it's too risky. So the, the worst thing you have to worry about is letting people know what you believe. you got to be able to hide that. And uh, the other thing is you need to learn how to fight. That's going to get harder and harder, okay? And fighting is something that you should never do because it's stupid, okay? But if you can't fight, you will be attacked, right? Uh, once you learn how to fight, then you get the ability to not fight. Uh, you don't get the ability to not fight and not be attacked until you learn how to do it. So you need to seek out something for that, and you need to do it outside of a group format. You just need somebody to do, to privately do it with you. For one thing, martial arts schools, particularly the ones that cater to, that have the best level of instruction, like the guys that feel pro-MMA fighters, these kind of people, they've been infiltrated by BLM, okay? And they've also been split over the COVID thing. Some really high-level schools are going under because of instructors offering privates during the COVID epidemic. And a lot of faggots and sissies join martial arts programs because they're terrified little gerbils and they're afraid they're going to get beat up. And they think that the acquisition of some skills is going to give them the ability to do this. Uh, and this is really important because any... Any white person that uses a gun to defend themselves is a potential white supremacist, okay? That's the first thing that the system is going to look at them as, okay? So uh, you don't ever want to use a gun to defend yourself until you decide that you're dying that day, okay? I mean, that's how bad it is. I don't, you're, the old, I'd rather be carried by, I'd rather be judged by 12 and carried by 6, uh, flip that, that's stupid, that means you're going to prison, okay? Do you want to spend 30 years? There's a guy in Portland, okay, who defended himself with his car against a homeless black man who tried to beat him with a steel pipe on the parking lot. I think it was a played pantry. His jury was at least half white, okay? This guy ended up running this dude over with his car. He panicked, okay? I, I don't think he should have done that. That should have probably been a trial for manslaughter, okay, right there. He got murder one, not murder two, but murder one with a hate crime rider. He can never get out of prison. Use a gun to defend yourself, okay? You're that guy, all right? That's you, okay? So uh, all, these, all these white guys through my life who laughed at me for being able to fight with a knife, with a stick, with an ashtray, with a bottle, with a brick, with my fist, all those guys that laughed at me, their only option is the nuclear option. All they got is Armageddon. All they got is their gun. All right? And most people know that you're going to be doing the calculus, and you're not going to use it. You're going to stand there, and you're not going to shoot them. 
If the guy fires in the air, he's not going to shoot you. Okay? And the guy says he's going to shoot you. He's not going to shoot you. The only guy that's going to shoot you is a guy that just shoots you and doesn't say anything to you. Okay? That's not very many uh, uh, gun owners with mortgages. Okay? Uh, the, um, the one thing that you really want to look at is you want to get away from news coverage because news coverage is just gaslighting. What you see on the news is basically street theater. Nothing important that applies to you is happening in any of these riot scenes. Unless you want to be a citizen journalist or a rioter and go down there and participate in it. And in that case, I hope you get run over by a truck because you're an idiot. And you need to get washed out of the gene pool anyhow. But what happens is, for instance, when there were, and it could be parades. It doesn't have to be riots. It could be parades. Anything that takes the police and the media, and it puts all their attention on a parade, on a parade, on a riot, on a demonstration, that casts a dark shadow across the rest of the municipality. You want to pay attention, and you can do this through some local social media, right like next door. Yeah, there's an app you can have where people will post, oh, my house just got broken into, my neighbor just got shot, that kind of stuff. That's actually what law enforcement uses to find out what's going on. So what you want to do is find a way of not using broadcast media or cable media or even like your favorite, like Colin Flaherty or any of that shit. That's just there to agitate or entertain you or support your beliefs. Uh, what you want to do is find out what's really going on in your area. And the only way you can do that is to walk. You will not believe if you walk 16 square city blocks that you drove through your whole life, you will not believe what you missed when you were driving. Okay, and you can pay attention to just the ground clutter. What, what, what's, you know, the, the needles, the crack files, anything, the, the liquor bottles, the razor blades, the shell casings. Okay, all of this kind of stuff you can look at. You hear a sound at night when you go out during the day, go to where that sound was and, and see what you can find. You actually need to become a frontiersman because this nation is being rendered into like an outer wasteland and an inner wasteland, they're trying to make it an outer and a middle wasteland. But right now, it's, you know, it, it's just crazy. It's a mismatch. You can go into a city and go three blocks and you go from a nice area to someplace where you're going to get scouted. So you have to walk your area and find out what it's about. I had uh, a friend of mine in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, asked me, uh, you know, asked me what to do about, about this very same thing. I was like, dude, you haven't walked your neighborhood yet. You lived there two years. I stayed there with him for five nights. I know his neighborhood better than him. The first day I take a walk. The second day I spent four hours in a bar with a bunch of Puerto Ricans, Dominicans, and black guys. Okay. And I found out everything I need to know about the neighborhood. And I discovered a place that in case I got in trouble, I could duck in there. Okay. Cause I made friends with a couple of these guys and one of these guys was a fighter. Okay, you know, so you need to scout your neighborhood. If there's a neighborhood bar, you need to go there. Somebody there has been mugged recently. They've been beat up. Okay, you can find out where it happened. So you have to gather intelligence as the man in your household. The uh, if, other I, if I can add to that real quick, when I lived sure. in a, a big city, which I don't anymore, thank God, um, I I was getting very concerned about these very issues, and it wasn't you know because I'm some prognosticator it just happened to be that i had experienced some things and i started putting things together and i'm like you know what i 
the police aren't helping me. I, I've tried. They, they don't do anything, if not actually create higher risk for me, uh, as the reasons you just mentioned. So I took it upon myself to actually just ride my bicycle uh, out of the city, looking for different routes if I needed to get out of there in case the freeways were blockaded. I lived in an area where this would happen occasionally by BLM. Um, you can't trust taking a car. Um, and going on foot is is good per se if you know how to sort of blend in, but it's a little bit slow and you can't get that far. Um, so I'd recommend a bicycle and in particular focusing on passages that are not navigable by by car, which are likely to be blocked, uh, but are overlooked uh, by just local thugs. So just wanted to add that, but please go ahead, James. If, if, if you're in a bad neighborhood, a bicycle makes you a target. Okay. Uh, if you are, yeah, I wasn't in that bad, in but I, I was. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I was trying to go yeah, around so those, basically. Well, actually, okay. So if you live in a neighborhood and uh, it's not bad, then you should do exactly as you suggested. Use your bicycle, learn everything about the area, and then you you do five circles. You want five perimeters, and your outer perimeter you would scout on your bike. Okay, and then the next outer perimeter would be for your long walks. Then the inner perimeters you need to walk them. Uh, but the uh, and then once you scout it out on your bike, then as the neighborhood gets bad, and it will, you want to do it on foot. Any hint that things are getting bad, that bicycle is a target and an asset. Okay, and you basically it's really easy to take out a bicycle. It happens all the time in places like Baltimore. And, so, and even in a place like Portland, the homeless guys have chop shops for bicycles constantly. A friend of mine, his son's bicycles got stolen, and he went down there and he faced down these 13 homeless guys, and he took their bicycles back. Okay? Uh, so when you see in Portland, when you see a big tent surrounded by little tents, that big tent is a bicycle chop shop. Yeah, so mine was actually chopped up uh, several times. So the bike I own is actually a Franken bike. It is composed of parts that I had to reassemble onto it uh, in order to continue its operation. But uh, leaving it on the street with a lock or two was not sufficient to mitigate the uh, the homeless and other people from I trying to disassemble it for me. I saw that even in Denver. But when when you're when you're scouting your area, you got to realize that scouts have to move slow. You will miss details unless you're moving slow. That's the whole whole idea behind it. Okay, so whenever I live somewhere, I generally spend two hours walking the area at two hours a day. Okay, uh, and I did that when I worked. Okay, although half of that walking I would do to and fro work. Okay, and then the other part would be a perimeter walk. It's actually something. If you want to know if your if your son's friends are doing drugs, you need to walk the alleys in the neighborhood and check for for vials, for needles, okay, for for the whole bit. So scouting has to be done slow, and that that so it is time consuming. You know, your American uh, guy that's got to make you know make a lot of money is not going to like that. And uh, the next item is something that might be an answer for that. But the bike is a good adjunct. And that would be what you scout your outer perimeter with. What your outer perimeter is, is go to where you hit main arteries, where you leave town. That's your outer perimeter. Where the freeway ramps are, uh, it's going to be no more than two miles out. Your outer perimeter shouldn't be more than two miles away. I'd prefer it to only be a mile away. But it depends on the density and, and the infrastructure and everything. Okay, uh, In a little old city like in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, the outer perimeter is only a mile away, but someplace out west will be farther. Uh, but one thing that might give you the time, 
and more people I know are doing this, is extended family living. Okay? People can't wait to separate from their parents. People can't wait to separate from their children. But that means that you never have two able-bodied men in a household. Okay? And that is one of the reasons why that model was used, why the Genesis go forth and multiply model was used for uh, the colonization of this nation. Okay. The other reason was it's a quick way to destroy virgin habitat. But the following reason is it makes every family a hostage while the man's away for work. Okay. And now you got a situation where the woman's away from work too. So uh, don't encourage. I, there's a young man who I coach. Him and his two brothers live with his father and his mother. They all have their own room. It's a nice big house. Why shouldn't they live together? He might get teased about it, okay? But there's only about three guys on the East Coast that could beat him in a fight. So I don't think he's going to get teased about it a lot, okay? And he's so good, he makes sure he doesn't hurt me when we train, okay? And that's a guy that still lives at home at 25. So my friend Steve has his three sons to protect his wife and his house when he's not there. They work, but they work at different times, okay? And particularly with the pandemic going on, you never know when somebody's got to live at home. And I've been living with a lot of people. I've, I've stayed and lived with, I think, 10 different uh, families so far this year. They all really appreciate having an able-bodied man at the house, okay? The women like it. The kids like it. The other guy likes it because he knows it's not totally defenseless when he leaves. Okay, so a return to extended family living would enable some of this other stuff, like being able to take a couple hours walking around. Now, when you're walking, if you walk with a woman, it's just like riding a bike. You become a crime target, okay? Uh, if you walk with another man, you become a challenge target. If some criminals are coming in the neighborhood and they want to do street clearance and start driving people off the street, they will pick a fight with you, okay? That might or might not be good. That might be what you want. It might not be what you want, okay? There's various ways you can handle that. There's various ways you can screw that up. Uh, if there is three of you, that will eliminate almost all aggression by criminals, and it will immediately make you a target of the pigs. Three white men together is a big problem. I was uh, recently training with uh, two men in a public park, and three police officers showed up. This has happened to me numerous times. This always happens. Three white men getting together has, uh, and doing anything together, standing and talking, uh, boxing, stick fighting, fencing, whatever, wrestling, all of these things have, in my life, attracted undue levels of police uh, curiosity. Well, we are now the only people the police can beat the shit out of and get away with it, okay? So a hammer is thirsty for a nail. So do not go out as a group of three men. If you go out as two, when your neighborhood's getting bad, expect a possible challenge to a fight. This could be negotiated, actually. It could be, you could beat their asses and it could go good. You could beat their asses and it could go bad. They could come back and shoot you or they could call the cops on you. They'll probably call the cops on you because you're white. Uh, you could uh, beat their asses and they don't come back. You could lose and they don't come back. Okay? You don't have to win. Okay? All you have to do is not let these guys dominate you and not quit. 
and they'll pretty much drift away, particularly if they're Negroes, okay? As soon as things don't go their way, they're looking for the door, all right? So, but I almost always handle this with a middle ground situation. Uh, yeah, there's one guy I spent a lot of time in bad spots with who's a pretty menacing, muscular, tattooed guy. Uh, guys are willing to pick fights with him at a high level, but I'm good at shutting fights down and actually, uh, you know, uh, cooling situations like this off. Okay, so he's a good guy for me to walk with, but he wouldn't be a good guy for you to walk with because he'd get you dragged into a fight. All right. Uh, so you've got to understand who you're with. You generally want somebody that's really calm, that doesn't get upset, and that you know for a fact, you know, is going to have your back. This isn't many people. This is one reason why uh, training and fighting arts is good, because the guy that's not willing to get punched in the face isn't going to have your back. He's, he's going to run away while you're getting surrounded. It's just the way it is. You know, it's just reality. This is why they used to have, when America was uh, tooling up to conquer the world, this is why they used to have boxing in high school. Okay? <laughs> so, so, I mean, those are, uh, those are basically, you know, uh, the general things. But I got to say, the most important thing, and it has helped many people have contacted me and said, I thought you were crazy, but you were right. Do not talk to the Negroes. Okay? You just do not. It's just an end. They count on you to think. They don't think. They have an agenda. They know what they want, and they're willing to act. You, as a white person, want to think and talk your way out of situations. That's their hook. Okay? So do not talk, okay, to the new ascendant class. Just do not do it. They'll initially get mad when you refuse to talk to them. you got to be willing to stay cool and not apologize. There was recently a video I saw where this stupid white bitch pulls a gun on this uh, mama hippo and daughter hippo. Okay? Yeah, while, in, the, in the parking lot. Right. While the big fat white man, okay, totally screwed this up. Okay, this guy's a cuck. He's letting that woman rule him. This, if, I'm sure a lot of people have seen this video. Look, you have... Uh, Two queens approach your woman. Okay? What do you do? Okay, the problem is your woman is supposed to have all the answers in the world. White women have the ultimate moral authority on planet Earth. Okay? Uh, and they believe this. That woman gets in an argument with these women trying to explain to them how much she cares about black people. They just want to pick a fight with her. She's a dumb bitch. Okay, what he needed to do was come out of there, grab her by the back of the head, knock her head lightly on the top of the car, just like a cop would do to me, just like cops have done to my friend Tony a number of times. Not to injure her, not to hurt her. Then slap her and say, bitch, get in the car. Okay, immediately, the two sisters, well, oh, that's a real way. I'm out of here. And they're going to go home and they're going to tell all their sisters about that, about that crazy white man, okay? You cannot, I was sitting in a light with the woman I ran in a room from because she, she's got bad knees. She can't carry her groceries. She's taking me to the grocery store. I'm sitting in the car and these two black guys cut her off and get in an argument, okay, in front of her. And she's pissed off because she's going to be one minute and 29 seconds late to the fucking dollar store, okay? I don't hit women. I wanted to slap her, but I didn't, okay? I was just quiet. And she said something, and she looked at me, and she said, what are you doing? What are you thinking about? I said, I'm just doing my visualizations. 
And she's like, your visualizations. I said, I do hundreds of visualizations every day, have since I was 13, since I decided I was no longer going to be a victim and no longer going to get beat up by gangs of guys. I do visualizations. She said, what are you visualizing? I said, the tall Negro is standing there screaming and I'm bringing the other one's head to you and I'm setting it on the hood of your car, okay? And then I'm going to stand there and wait and you're going to have to watch me stab the responding cop in the neck. I've run this scenario three times in 30 seconds because it's only taken about four seconds, okay? This is what I will do if you ever get me in a fight with anybody. I will kill them. I'm too old to fight. I don't fight people. I will not be arrested. You will see the whole atrocity and you will have nightmares for the rest of your life. So think the next time you start screaming Negro and stupid from behind your rolled up windows because they might hear you or you might forget that your window is rolled down. Okay, so you have to you just have to command your women in situations like this and they appreciate it. Okay, so and you don't have to be as crude as I suggested. You, you could be instead of knocking her head. That bitch, you probably would have had to knock her head on the car, okay? Uh, if you were a cool, slick guy, like Big Ron, you could just say, hey, baby, let's go, okay? And you blow a kiss to the black girls, and maybe while you're shoving her in the car, wink to the old one, and then try to get her number, okay? Do anything. Women immediately, black women immediately fall in love with white guys who just flirt with them a little bit and give them some respect and pretend they're attractive, okay? It, I mean, it's so easy. It's not even funny. It's, it's like wrangling puppies, it's really pathetically easy, but people want to make it hard because they want to be right. So your woman is your biggest liability because she believes in right and wrong. And right and wrong is bullshit, for one, and it's malleable, number two. Okay, so uh, you just got to be about uh, her not getting attacked, you not getting attacked, you not going to prison, you not having to kill anybody. And you got to explain to the dumb bitch because she is. Once she gets upset, she's going to be a dumb bitch, okay? There's only a couple of women in this country that once they get upset will not be a dumb bitch, okay? That's just the way they are, and they understand that design, and uh, I have no problem dealing with them when they understand that. And they want to understand it, but, you know, most men in this country are so liberalized, they want to believe that men and women are psychologically identical, and that we're just different physically so it so it doesn't work so you never end up with this team effort so you can't do any scouting with your woman all right uh so the probably the only good thing about uh the shamdemic is it's going to get women in the habit of staying inside okay so you don't have to drag the dumb broad around with you and get in a fight because you got her there all right a friend of mine almost had to uh had to go to prison because uh he and his wife were at the laundromat now, this is a black couple, and there's another black couple there with a kid, and the other black woman is beating the shit out of her eight-year-old kid. And this woman wants to start an argument over that. And this guy took my advice. He looked at her. He said, if I get into it with him, I'm going to kill him. Okay? I don't play fight. I'm going to kill him. So you're on your own. I'm going out. Clothes are dirty. Bring him out to the car if you want to. And he left, and she followed him like a puppy dog. Okay, because what's she going to do? Beat that big Negro woman up and her buck at the same time? I don't think so. She needed him. So men need to understand what kind of authority they have with their women, and it's authority that our women want us to have over us. Okay, they don't want us to be crude and loud, okay, in public. They want us to be calm and in charge in public. 
and that's uh, that's it. So uh, that's th- those are like the big broad strokes there for you know not getting uh, snuffed by the cops or locked up or turned into a celebrity white supremacist. As the multitude sat As the cattle cars pulled along the rusty tracks One raised his hand in the fading light Said, excuse me sir, this doesn't seem right Now he's gone like whispers, gone like rain Gone like the faithful while the faithless remain Gone like the stone the builder refused Gone and overdue With a strong undertow No one crosses it to freedom No one pans for gold Its waters are clear But its waters are cold Its current is swift And no one knows where it goes It's just gone like whispers Gone like rain Gone like the faithful while the faithless remain Gone like the stone the builder refused Gone and overdue Gone and overdue Like the stone, the builder refused. 